Robert Kennedy appealed to young and old, black and white, student and worker. Trying to end the violence that began with the murder of his brother. But as he speaks at this Los Angeles hotel, an assassin is waiting nearby. I thought that he was the prince. I thought he was the heir apparent to President Kennedy, and I wish the hell that he could have made it. When I saw him in real life, it was a thrill to me, sir. But when I saw him there that night at the ambassador, he seemed like a, a saint. My thanks to all of you, and now it's on to Chicago, and let's win there. On this day, June 4th, 1968, he has won the California primary, finishes his victory speech, and moves through the happy crowd to this doorway, then enters the door to the kitchen passageway where a Palestinian fanatic waits with a gun. He is shot from behind three times, including point blank behind the ear. Although rapidly losing blood, he says, is everyone else all right? The gunman is Sirhan Sirhan, 24, a horse track employee in Los Angeles. This program deals with devil worship and satanic beliefs. It contains explicit scenes and descriptions of violent crimes and rituals. Americans are asking, who attacked our country? You declared a subliminal jihad against the United States. Can you tell us why? Everything pertaining to what's happening has never come to the surface. The world will never know the true facts of what occurred, my motives. And night fell on a different world. And Iblis is thinking, you know, I should be getting this position, not Adam, and this guy is created from dirt. And how does the army feel about you being head of the Temple of Set? And the conspiracy theorists can say what they will. But... I want you to give me power over Adam, and I want you to give me soldiers and minions and all of these things. The defense has so much to gain and has such a material very, very special guest in the Zoom Grotto with us to talk about a case that is been getting a lot of attention, quite deservedly so, in the last month or so. With the parole of Sirhan Sirhan, we have with us the estimable veteran researcher and author, Lisa Pease. Lisa, are you there? I'm here. Thank you very much. <laughs> Yes, well, it's wonderful to have you here. We have read your book, A Lie Too Big to Fail, and we, I think, have so many questions for you today to get into uh, this this gargantuan uh, topic of the assassination of of Senator Robert Kennedy. And I, I think that, I'll say just off the bat, I mean, I think your book is such a service and is such a skillful and thorough compendium of all of the different aspects of this case, which was, I mean, incredibly influential in the political trajectory of mid-20th century America. 
I, I think we can all agree. But before we jump into all the different uh, elements of this, I guess maybe for our and our listeners' benefit, Lisa, I was just curious um, how you first got involved in researching the Robert Kennedy case and, uh, and yeah, how did you get into this, uh, taking on this mission? <laughs> yeah, I fall down the rabbit hole. I do this thing that so many journalists seemingly have uh, failed to do. Yeah, how did you get into it? Uh, first of all, I started with the JFK assassination, and that started with a couple of books at a garage sale. That one of them was Jim Garrison's on the trail of the assassins, and and the other was Mark Lane's book. So I got really interested in the JFK case, and right then the internet was like becoming public and it was open to the world. So my first internet search ever was JFK assassination, and I landed in a news group where they were discussing this with great intensity and I'd read two books. So I thought I knew something. And, and of course, Mm -hmm. people just jumped all over me and, you know, you got that wrong and this and that. (laughs) And so I don't like to lose an argument, but I also want to be right. Like, I'm not going to defend my position. If I'm wrong, I'm not going to lie to defend my position. So I, but I knew I was right. So I would go to the library and I found like the whole set of the Warren commission volumes, which I now have on the shelves behind me. And I just started reading through um, actual testimony and then quoting like bits of primary records instead of secondary sources like books. And in the course of my research, one day at the Central Library where I I work nearby and I used to run over on my lunch hour and just read because it was fascinating history to me that no one else had ever told me. And one day I pulled out a drawer and instead of the JFK files I thought I was going to get, I I saw what I recognized immediately were the LAPD's files of the RFK case on microfilm reels. And they had no index. It was just 22 boxes, you know, sitting there in a drawer. And so I pulled one out at random. It was like, I don't know, reel 5, 6, 7, 16. It wasn't the start and it wasn't the end. It was somewhere in the middle. And the first reel I put in talked about a second man arrested at the hotel that night and handcuffed that was not named Sirhan Sirhan. And I'm like, I've never heard this story before. What is this? And as I read through the reel, there was all kinds of evidence of other suspects, you know, other suspicious characters, people, you know, claiming they had seen Sirhan in the company of a girl in a polka dot dress. And Mm -hmm. again, not just one witness, but multiple witnesses. And so I'm like, wow, what what is the rest of this story? And at that point, I think I'd read one book on the Robert Kennedy assassination. So the first thing I did is I went and read all the other books, which at that time was like five. (laughs) There were like Mm, five books on the case. So it was easy to get caught up. But I spent like the next 20 years reading my way through every document on those reels. Now, I can't say I still haven't read every document but after a while, you start to know where to focus and which documents have the good stuff, so to speak. And in the course of that, there were a number of witnesses that seemed to have important parts of the story where I couldn't find their interview. And so I ordered those uh, the tapes of those interviews. And, of course, a pattern instantly emerged. If, if it had something really interesting that indicated conspiracy, that was usually one of the interviews not transcribed. So, you know, it's like you follow the negative template, if you will, (laughs) to find the interesting stuff more quickly. And here's the thing. There was a point right when I was getting into this where I was literally accepted into law school. I was encouraged to apply for a full scholarship. And I I had this decision to make because it's like I knew if I went into law school, I wouldn't have time to research all this stuff. 
And I knew if I researched, I would never make the money I would make if I went into law school. But to <laughs> me, the truth was so interesting and so important to the world. It was an easy decision. I mean, I did. I spent the summer interviewing lawyers. It's like, do you like your job? Everybody said the same thing. They said, you're going to love school and hate the practice. <laughs> now, I like to argue, so I probably would have liked the practice, to be perfectly honest. But I also yeah. like to tell the truth. And I know that lawyers are constrained, you know, to represent their client as best they can, which doesn't always mean telling the truth, unfortunately. And, and and so I just, I had to choose truth. That's, I'm a Sagittarius. We're all about the truth. You know? Right on. Like that I'm is my Sagittarius passion. rising. So oh, no wonder. No wonder. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Yeah. John Newman and I have like very similar charts evidently. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> but yeah, it's just a passion for me. And I, I saw instantly how important that was the narrative because again, Jerry Brown and the whole Democratic Party and the trajectory and where the Clintons were going versus where the Kennedys had been going was so yeah. obviously different to me. I really want, I knew I would understand the current world more if I stepped back 20 or 30 years and looked at what, how it got to be this way. And of course, now it's like 50 years ago and there's a, a younger generation. It's like, what, you know, that's so far away. I mean, there are people now growing up who never experienced 9-11. I mean, yeah. it's a very different world now. But at the time, it was still somewhat fresh. And so it's interesting now to be around when it's in the news for its brief window of time. And either Sirhan will get released or he won't. And by the way, your listeners will have a say in that because the governor will listen if people write the governor and let him know that you care and that you want Sirhan released, because his instinct, of course, is to veto this and deny it. And he's all but signaled that in the media already. Yes, he, I noticed know. in his victory speech, I think after the recall, he he dropped a reference to his like personal hero, Robert F. Kennedy, right? <laughs> right, right. And yeah, and he's known to be very close to that. So here's the thing. People who grew up at that time were incredibly traumatized by the event. So they really, you know, and, and remember that his was like the fourth in a row. First, there was JFK, which was, you know, big and shocking and really mm -hmm. traumatic for people. And they were glued to the TV for like four days watching this unfold in real time. And then there was uh, Malcolm X was killed. And then jo Martin Luther King was killed just two months before. So by the time they got to Bobby, there was like assassination fatigue had set in. And sure. there was also the thought that, well, they can't all be conspiracies because by then people were being ridiculed. Oh, you're a conspiracy theorist, you know, for thinking these were conspiracies. And so this one seems so neatly wrapped up. Here, you know, Robert Kennedy gave a victory speech at the Ambassador Hotel, which is not far from where I live, just down the street. <laughs> and mm -hmm. uh, after the speech, he walked through this little narrow kitchen area called the pantry, where he was en route to the print media. He'd already spoken in front of all the TV media, but he used to be a journalist himself long ago. And so he had great sympathy for the print media and how hard it was for them to get access. So he usually tried to make you know, a habit of stopping for them. And as he walked through the pantry, a couple of busboys came up and shook his hand. And all of a sudden, Sirhan appears in the middle of the room in front of Kennedy, pulls out a gun and fires at Kennedy. Kennedy falls down backward. Uh, you know, pandemonium in the room. People, the shots were over before a lot of people even registered that there was a shooting taking place. It's like, it was yes. so unexpected. It really caught people off guard. 
you know, you can't be prepared for something like that. All of a sudden, people thought it was firecrackers. Uh, so many people, right? So many people thought it was like firecrackers. 77 people that the LAPD were able to list in that room. So tiny room, but a lot of people there. And because everybody felt they had seen it on TV, they did not broadcast the assassination. This is a huge a warp in the psych psychological mind. People are like, we saw it on TV. It's like, no, you saw the aftermath on TV. Yeah. There were no cameras on when the shooting took place, which is, of course, one of the reasons they'd want to do it in that room, because the cameras had just been turned off because the speech was over. Now, there was one microphone that was left on because the guy forgot he had it on. The uh, Polish journalist, right? Yes. Yeah, mm -hmm. I'm not going to say his name right. Yeah. I will not take <laughs> offense. I'm Polish. I won't take offense. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the name was, uh, yeah, it was like Strzynski or something. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Who was a yeah. Radio Free and Europe uh, reporter, actually. I, I used to think that when I first read about him that he was from like communist Poland, like he was a foreign correspondent, but I guess he was, he had defected to, uh, I think either West Germany or France. And he, but he, I think he was working as a freelancer on the night that he was in the pantry. Right. right. And of course, like so much of the evidence that was, uh, that was analyzed to have 12 to 13 shots. Yeah. Uh, at least. What, yeah. And the thing is there, there were at least 13 bullets in the pantry, provably documentally photos of every one of them in a sense, because mm -hmm. there were five other people wounded besides Robert Kennedy. So Robert Kennedy was literally shot four times. Five other people were shot at least once each. You know, one of them was shot like twice. And yet mm -hmm. all of these are supposed to come from eight bullets. And there are four additional bullet holes and one bullet hole with a bullet still in the wood, according to the AP's caption, as two police officers pointed at the bullet still in the wood. And yeah. so it's it's shocking right from the start that people didn't even consider it could be a conspiracy. But the police were like, we have one man, this is it, you know, we've got him. And and there there were people who struggled with Sirhan and took a gun from him in tight quarters. So it was certainly easy to believe that he had been the lone assassin. And it wasn't until, I mean, the files the LAPD had weren't even released until 20 years later. So for people to think they knew everything about the case when the police files hadn't even been opened was simply ridiculous. And so, you know, the Kennedy children, I have great, great sympathy for them and the trauma they were raised with and, and Ethel trying to raise 11 kids as a single mom. I mean, can you imagine? <laughs> and Ethel's side of the family was kind of wild, hooting and tooting, you know, gun shooting <laughs> side of the family anyway. Yeah, yeah they so, came from a, a, it yeah. was an oil company. Her father uh, ran an oil company in Chicago, I think. Uh, I don't remember the details, so I, I won't yeah, I say, but Robert Kennedy <laughs> yeah. Jr. wrote a really good book called American Values, and he describes that side of the family. And I, I think of Yosemite Sam when I think of that side of the family. <laughs> it's actually <laughs> it's interesting like, that <laughs> you mentioned that because I was thinking, you know, I was talking to Dimitri uh, just earlier and just saying, you know, yeah, like, as you say, you know, 1968 was just a crazy year. And it was definitely something that was like the experience of all these events was so transformative to the consciousness. And I remember actually reading some time ago that did you ever see that show uh, Scooby Doo? with this talking dog and they solve yeah. mysteries, you know? Yeah. And yeah. the dog was like, you know, and it always turns out that it's like old man McGregor was dressing up as the ghost or like the Sasquatch or, you know, the monster. Basically, like they kind of are like usually like financial conspiracies, but 
you know, there isn't too much complexity to it. And always this, you know, these heroic kids are able to do it. And apparently like part of the reason for the existence of Scooby-Doo was because in the wake of the Kennedy assassination, people felt that there was so much, not only so much violence on television, but also so much uncertainty and like uh, so much wild speculation about all the things that had happened. And this was actually like a deliberate attempt not to only move towards like lighter content on like Saturday morning cartoons for children, but also like to kind of like do a little bit of social engineering to help, you know, because... You know, it was also that yeah, didn't like work the, on me. I yeah, I, mean, yeah. All the time. Uh, I guess on me neither, because I remember watching yeah that as a, as a kid too. But it's definitely, I think, an important thing to consider, like in talking about this, like the the climate of the time, like the yes. the years, yes. uh, like the year nineteen sixty eight. Something is a else people don't know because they weren't yeah. alive then is that they literally showed like bloody soldiers on the battlefield in Vietnam on the news. I mean, they would show people bleeding with heads hanging off and arms and legs. I mean, it was really horrific. And nowadays, we do the same thing, and they're the same kind of uh, casualties, but we don't see it. And I think that's a, you know, it's funny, right after the Brown campaign and before I got into this, I spent a few months volunteering with the group FAIR, Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, Mm -hmm. because to me, the media is not doing the job that it needs to do for a democracy And that's tell us the hard truths, the difficult truths, the ugly truths that we really don't want to deal with. And instead, honestly, we get like 24-7 politics as if that's the only news that ever happens in this planet. CNN, you know, I I tweeted about that the other night, CNN and and MSNBC and all of them, the N should be changed to a P for politics because it's not news, it's politics. All they report is politics and they report one side and then the other they don't talk it's about true. climate change. They don't talk about labor. They don't talk about history and history like this that matters. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's everything's it's mediated it's by all a partisan commentary. Narrative. It's all it's all mm-hmm. you know, like the opinion people. Uh, yeah. You know, they used to sort of draw this sort of illusory separation between the news people and the opinion people, the hard news, but. Obviously, that's gone out the window, like in the 24-hour, you know. Right. uh, And so this is where I I have to fault the Kennedy children in a way, because how dare they think that that news media would ever tell them the truth about their father's assassination? That media, it's like those people, you know, they're lucky if they get a day or two for a story. Usually they get 20 or 30 minutes to write a story. (laughs) I mean, the cycle goes so fast. Especially now on the internet, everything's clickbait. Yeah, yeah. And so it does fall to people like me. And the only reason I wrote a book is because I really, I did not want to write a book. I really, really did. It's like, (laughs) and I remember hearing Shane O'Sullivan, you know, was going to do a book, this Irish guy. And I was all excited because it's like, oh, good, then I don't have to. He'll tell all this good stuff. And and then after his book came out, it's like, oh, he didn't tell what needed to be told. I'm going to have to write my book. Gotta do it yourself. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. You know, I was just talking again, something I was mentioning to Dimitri earlier, just reading through like the files that you mentioned, the like uh, LAPD files, which thankfully now, like a lot of which you can get online. Like it's interesting to like sort of note people's relationship that they have with the news. Like there was one letter that we were reading over where a woman like wrote into Walter Cronkite, like saying, you know, like, Dear Mr. Cronkite, like I saw someone like point like a gun at Kennedy and say bang and he looked like really scared and like I thought it was real for a second like can I see a rerun of this yeah it's interesting like you know everyone was so like 
wrapped up in the, you know, participating in the media in, you know, this very interesting way. What you mentioned that it's so interesting, the idea, like, you know, yeah, people never actually saw it. They only saw right. the aftermath. But they, they believe that they, they did. did. They yeah. It's like a Mandela did. effect thing. Yeah, it's, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Very, it really is. And it's this crazy, like. It's a mass it's, hypnosis is really kind of what happened. Yeah. And that, I the, think the narrative like, was yeah. repeated in certain points of the footage that were taken immediately after the shooting were run over and over. But yeah, people didn't see it. They didn't hear it. You know, they, they've heard clips of the audio that did happen live over footage that was shot afterwards, but they never saw it live. But anyway, so all of that has, and the fact that in those days, there were literally only three networks, ABC, NBC, and CBS. There was no cable, there was no internet. So everybody got their media from one of three sources. And those three sources were all kind of in cahoots with each other. And And more importantly, and really to the point of where we're going with this, the CIA took an extreme interest in the media because they knew one, reporters make great spies because they have access they have the ability to ask any question at all and no one wonders why they're asking because they're journalists of course they're asking a question uh but also they knew their own future because they were a fairly new agency they were only created in 1947 and they knew their future depended on them being able to come up with good intelligence so that's one of the reasons they got in bed with the media the other is of course in uh i think it was 19 63 might have been 63 uh, one of the very first books critical of the cia came out and that was that really upset the cia and, and, and then they like made an all-out effort to control the broadcast media so that stories like that would not hurt them could not knock them out of the water and in, in JFK's reign, and, and we're talking JFK for the moment, right before he was killed, there were stories in the media saying, if there's a coup in the United States, it will come from the CIA and not the Pentagon, which is mm. a pretty interesting headline to lead with, right? And then Kennedy is killed a month after and 50 years, you know, almost 60 years later now, you know, we're pretty sure the CIA was directly involved in that hit. Uh, so mm-hmm. anyway, the CIA had reason to control the media, and they had reason to fear Robert Kennedy. And I found an interesting article in the Washington Post that said in the last year of his life, the CIA considered spying on Robert Kennedy as important as spying on the entire Soviet Union. They saw him as an equal threat. One man was as much uh-huh. a threat to their agency as the entire KGB and the Russian government. Just yeah. let that sink in. Yeah. <laughs> I remember not- seeing that in your book and also a quote that I hadn't heard before where I guess when he took a visit to the Concepcion mines in Chile and mm. said, if I worked in these mines, I'd be a communist too. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yikes. Uh, hard to imagine and- anyone, any politician saying that. You know, uh, right? Yeah, and Kennedy. No I mean, Robert true. Kennedy himself was kind of a cold warrior, more even so than his brother, and he was a little bit more inclined to, hey, let's try this covert action, let's try some of these paramilitary ops. He kind of fell in love with it early on, and then when he saw like what happened, like the assassination of Diem in Vietnam, you know, both brothers were appalled by that because they realized they had set that in motion but they really didn't see that's where it was going to end and and they felt terrible about that and and so bobby i think was a little slower to learn to reject the cia as wholly as jfk learned in his first hundred days that's the other thing a lot of people think the bay of pigs happened like 
in the middle of Kennedy's regime. No, it's like in the first hundred days, it's like he was still getting his feet wet being president. And here he has an agency that says this was a going concern under Eisenhower and it's going to succeed and, you know, just let us do it. And they gave him all these arguments why it was going to work and don't worry, there won't be any word of American involvement. And Kennedy fell for it. And, you know, but never again. After that, the CIA could never quite persuade him of any of their efforts which made them increasingly in, incensed you know he didn't want to support they wanted to go to war in venezuela because a cuban weapons cache was there and uh, you know there's just oh it's just crazy they should have gone happened. to war and yeah i guess well i guess if they're looking for anti-castro cuban caches they could have declared war in louisiana or florida yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly it's such exactly. an interesting dimension you know people talk about a lot you know especially nowadays how in what way were like these people perhaps controlled like how was sirhan sirhan controlled you know how was his mind controlled how was he manipulated but I think, you know, it's equally important to consider, like, how were we controlled? How are we, like, still being controlled, you know? And not necessarily just in the sense that we're being lied to, but, like, that maybe the same techniques, the same, oh, yeah. like, level of effort, the same intricacy. And you mentioned someone, an interesting figure in your book, uh, Frank Wisner, you know, who, uh, you know, was very Wisner engaged. Wisner of the mighty Wurlitzer of the Yes, exactly, media. right. Yeah, yeah, they called the media. That was a term for the media, right? Listeners, Wurlitzer. Right. His son actually right. became like a pretty active diplomat too. Like, and he had did. his fingers in all sorts of like sauce things. But yeah, it's very interesting uh, dimension. And about it, it does yeah. happen today. Like, I mean, you know, I can point again right back to uh, 2003, I guess, which is not exactly yesterday, but to me, it feels a lot closer. <laughs> the older you get, the the shorter your life. You know, it all seems closer together. Sure. But in 2003, we started hearing about these weapons of mass destruction, and it was just a given, and no one in the media questioned it. And more recently, what was the, oh, it was the chemical attack in Syria. Do you remember that story? Oh, I do, yeah. Supposedly Assad had used chemical weapons against his own people. Well, I just instantly, you know, I'm really suspicious now after all my research. So I started digging into that story right away. And the evidence seemed to come that it didn't come from Assad. It came from the Western forces. And it looked very much like a false flag operation where they were trying to make it look like Assad had done it in order to justify invading. And the media kept saying, oh, here's proof that it was chemical weapons. And I even, I called out a reporter who was kind of favorable to our side. It was, I was at a conference on the JFK assassination back in Pittsburgh and a local reporter who was a friend of Cyril Wex one of the great voices on both the JFK case and the RFK case, uh, a forensic uh, pathologist, essentially. Uh, Anyway, but I I called her out because I said, but even today you guys are still doing it. And I said, because you're, you're framing it as like, it was, you know, was it chemical weapons or not, as opposed to who fired it? Yeah. <laughs> it yeah, was like, no, exactly. it was a given that Assad had fired it. And the only question was whether it was, ke- you know, really chemical weapons or not. Yeah. But to me, it was the other way around. It was a given that it was chemical weapons, but who fired it? Exactly. And, I think Seymour yeah. Hirsch wrote an article about that. And I think he could only get it published in like the London Review of Books. And everybody just, you know, <laughs> our favorite term, they earned him, you know, off the block basically and said, shut up, Seymour, you ridiculous conspiracy theorist. And, you know, well, and, uh, the, yeah. Yeah. Seymour Hirsch has been notorious on both sides, meaning he has deep CIA sources, which sometimes has led him to tell the truth and sometimes has led him to tell big, wild 
false stories. Totally. And so he really doesn't have credibility, even though I think he was telling the truth in that story. But he'd yeah. already so damaged his credibility in other stories, it was easy to ignore him. He wrote a terrible book on the Kennedys that's just full of falsehoods from start to finish, called The Dark Side of Camelot. So it's like, oh, do not hold that. him up yeah. as a hero because he's No, totally. I, I have my th- feelings with him as well. I think I watched that, that Wormwood documentary about Frank Olson, and kind of at the end, yeah. he's like, yeah, I know more about this, but like, I'm going to protect my sources. I'm just not going to tell you. <laughs> it's like, I don't I, know. It's always a very annoying thing to hear, you know? Yeah. I, I hate the gesture towards like, oh, I know all the secret stuff. But I can't tell you. Like, all right, yeah, thanks. Yeah. Well, now I can't possibly trust anything. But yes, it's. Uh, I mean, of course, yeah, we all remember the incubator babies, and even like right. more recently, even more recently than the Huta attack, we also have like this going on in, around Afghanistan and things like that. You know, today. Oh like, yeah, where, yeah. There know, was a like, false story that Rachel Maddow reported and then had to retract like the next day or something. Uh, and, or the you know yeah. the killing of the ISIS members. It turned out to be like ten innocent people and children. Yeah. Like yeah. it yeah. outrageous. Right. Which is so common uh, with drone drone right. operations that never right. get reported on. Oops, we blew up another wedding. Oops. Right. Or, and this you is, know, this tra- is why the history corralling is so everyone in- to the airport yeah. so you can get your video of everyone trying to leave you know yeah. it's the same yeah. type of thing and that's why my my recommendation to people is study any one of those kind of events any big life-changing history-changing event in great depth because you will learn the patterns and there are certain patterns of cover-up and procedures and by kind of focusing on the assassinations of the 60s i was able to see like the common threads through all of them and the way they are covered up and here's one of the ways they cover it up book reviews you know whose books get reviewed people yeah. you know cover up artists like gerald posner or um oh, yeah. uh dan moldea in this case a lot of people don't know but dan moldea who's written on the rfk assassination he's literally the godfather to thane eugene caesar's youngest child wow so, and and i found <laughs> in my research that thane eugene caesar absolutely 100 percent worked for the cia contract agent you know so yeah. technically yeah. not an employee on the books but you know that's where he got his money essentially for years and so to have dan moldea so close to him that he's literally his godfather it's like how much can we expect him to tell the truth about thane caesar and his role there if he's you know, if it's now his like close personal friend, come on, you know, yeah, it's, it's yeah, crazy. that's just the uh, it's yeah. uh, it's it's what the LAPD called their investigation of this case. It's sus. <laughs> It's extremely <laughs> sus, you know. Yes, I, there's yes. just something so cosmic about the fact that it was special unit senator to investigate this murder. I mean, it's almost like they're kind of taunting. I guess sus wasn't a term, but you know, no, it was almost like called. Uh, it was yeah. almost called special operations senator. And what's interesting is, is that is that special operations is like the insider term for intelligence operations. So it's I thought funny. that was really interesting that the last minute they discussed, they decided to just call it special unit senator. But yeah, I looked up like the staff records of all the people who had been on special unit senator, and they all had like army intelligence, military intelligence, Navy intelligence, CIA. They all had intelligence connections, which yeah. meant they're all gonna cover for their employers. You know, well, right. you had Lute- you had uh, Manny Pena and you had right. Hank Hernandez, who both worked for U.S. Aid in Latin right. America, doing exact same thing that Dan Mitrione who was mm-hmm. also a cop and Jim Jones's lifelong best friend 
who was going down to Brazil and uh, as portrayed in uh, the great Costa Garvas movie, State of Siege, um, mm-hmm, where mm-hmm. Yves Montan plays him, you know, basically was teaching these guys how to electrocute people, electrocute leftists and torture people and all this stuff. And mm-hmm. then they get they get flown back to L.A. to uh, get staffed on special unit senator. And, you know, and Manny Pena had retired. Manny Pena, they'd thrown him a big party. Now, where in L.A. do you live? Are you in the Valley at all or do you know where the sportsman's lodge yeah uh, i'm in northeast la okay Um, okay because in the valley there's this great old place sportsman's lodge and you know it's it's kind of funky and i don't don't know how to describe it you just kind of have to go there someday but they threw manny pena a big retirement party there so big it literally made the media (laughs) and then months later he's back working at lapd just in time to be staffed on special unit senator come on you know something's weird about that and, and Manny Pena and Hank Hernandez. And Hank Hernandez had been, like, working with some of the dictators that we installed. And, yeah. it, you know, he was trained in special interrogation, which is the only way to describe what he did to Sandy Serrano, one of the Absolutely. key witnesses. Because uh, we kind of lost the trail of the story. So quick recap for listeners who really don't know this history. So Kenny gave his acceptance speech. He just won the California primary. He's poised to possibly be the Democratic nominee in 1968 for president. Would have run against Nixon. Uh, goes into the pantry, gets shot. Uh, and then as he's being shot, I mean, you know, right after he was shot, Sandy Serrano is one of the volunteer workers sitting outside the back fire escape. Um, the hotel sat between Wilshire Boulevard and 8th Street for anybody in the Los Angeles area, and she would be on the 8th Street side, which is something Mel Iton, one of the Dan uh, Moldea acolytes, gets wrong. He tries to put her on the wrong side of the hotel so he can discredit her. Wow. But anyway, she's in the back, not the front, and and these two of three people she had seen entered together come running back out. Now, just before Kennedy came down to give his speech, she saw three people walk past her up the back fire escape. And one was a a man in a gold sweater. Another was a girl in a white dress with dark polka dots. And the third person was a guy, a skinny guy in blue jeans with dark curly hair, who she said looked borracho. And then she instantly qualified that, but not drunk. So, because that's one of the excuses people have tried to say, oh, he was drunk out of his mind. No, he wasn't. And uh, anyway, uh, she saw the three enter, and then two came out, but not the Baracho guy in the blue jeans. And that was Sirhan, and he ended yeah. up being captured. So that's why he couldn't escape. And I have like five or six witnesses, this young party of girls all in their teens, had tracked this trio together or in twos like some of them saw the girl with sir hand some of them saw the guy in the gold shirt with sir hand and some saw all three with you know together so mm-hmm. it's like they were provably there they were provably in cahoots in some way and uh anyway as the girl in the polka dot dress runs out the back she's yelling we shot him we shot him and sandy's like who did you shoot she said senator <laughs> kennedy and she's like laughing and joking and runs off into the dark parking lot which is right there and disappeared into history and people have tried to find her and 
And to me, that's like trying to figure out who the shooter was in Dealey Plaza. It actually doesn't matter. As the great John Judge once said, the bullets yeah. came from D.C. They didn't come from <laughs> the sixth floor depository, and that's all you need to know. And, yeah, that's a great <laughs> phrase. Yeah. yeah. And so, Indeed. like I said, literally every year somebody calls me up and gives me their story of why this particular person is the girl in the polka dot dress. And I listen to them, and I look at their pictures, and so far none of them have held up. Um, and that includes the recent one, Elaine Neal. <laughs> the evidence is flimsy at best. And uh, somebody kind of over eagerly said, oh, all the witnesses identified her. No, they said of the eight photos they were shown, hers was the most similar. That means nothing. You know, that's, yeah, yeah. that's silly. And she really uh, vanished, right? I mean, like they've. She really vanished. Yeah. Yep, yep. And, <laughs> and here's the interesting thing. So the police, while they're telling everybody it's no conspiracy, it was Sir Han alone. In the background for two weeks, they have an APB out for this girl yeah, in the polka dot dress. That's crazy. It's like they they desperately wanted to find her because they knew they had too many bullets in the pantry. They really wanted to find one other conspirator to link to Sirhan because hmm. they knew that was going to be a problem over time. And they actually tried to bring in Sirhan's brothers. They showed people pictures of Adele Sirhan, the older brother, and Munir Sirhan, the younger brother, and tried to get people to identify one of them because then they could have kept it a small like family conspiracy. Of course, a family yeah. Arab conspiracy. Yeah. yeah. It just made yeah. so much sense to people. And of yeah. course, maybe that was also because there were uh, several individuals who vaguely looked like Sirhan that were wandering around the hotel, which yeah. I think you make a pretty convincing argument was probably not a coincidence. Yes, you know? yes. I, in the JFK assassination, and again, I like to flip back and forth because they're so similar. There were yeah. people who claimed to be Lee Harvey Oswald showing up and doing things and drawing attention to themselves who were provably not the Lee Harvey Oswald who was shot by Jack Ruby after totally. supposedly killing yeah. Kennedy. And so it is an intelligence operation thing to have multiple people share aliases in the Watergate break-in. Um, both Frank Sturgis and E. Howard Hunt shared the alias, uh, what was it, Edward Hamilton, you know, or something. It was Eduardo, like their, right? Yeah, well, yeah. Eduardo when he was paymaster, which he shared with um, James McCord, who, by mm. the way, was into the mind control stuff. But uh, and and, he, and yeah. so anyway, so the official story doesn't hold up on any level. Sirhan was in front. The the medical evidence shows Kennedy was shot at close range from behind, and Sirhan was like two to three feet in front of Kennedy by the people who saw them both at that time. There were people who saw guns closer, but they could never identify that gun as being held by Sirhan, which was a point that even my fellow researchers never really looked into. And they all just assumed that had to be Sirhan. It's like, even when you look into this case, it's easy to fall for the lies that are right there in the files. The police made it look like it was only two people. But if you dig just a little deeper, it can't be. <laughs> yeah, it just no, absolutely. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I used to think for a while and, um, you know, maybe I, I kind of became aware that maybe it was like six or seven years ago. I watched that really great series, Evidence of Revision, that documentary oh, yeah. series. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it has, you know, it starts out with the Kennedy assassination. I think episodes four and five cover um, Sirhan uh, and RFK. And I think uh, it, it's worth watching alone because it has the audio of the Sandy Serrano interrogation with right. Hernandez where he's just berating her. No, you did not hear her say that. Sandy, you're lying. And she's like, no, uh -huh. I'm not lying. And it's just, he keeps, he's 
wearing her down, wearing her down. Oh, yeah. Anybody you know. who hears that tape, and that's why I quoted it, the transcript extensively in my book, you can't read that and say the police were trying to find the truth. It's clear that here was a girl who had direct evidence of conspiracy, and she needed to be taken down. And they made it very clear to her she was not getting out of her chair that night. She was strapped in the chair. She brought an aunt with her who was supposed to protect her from yeah. this kind of interrogation. And then her aunt says, okay, yeah, I'll wait outside. And I'm like, oh, I wanted to kill the aunt when I read that. It's like, don't you know? This is the whole reason she brought you here is so know, you can protect her from and being berated. Oh, so to her credit, she st- she held out for a long time. She did, and she just... was so strong and smart. But she she also was smart enough to know that until she lied and told the police what they wanted to hear, she was never getting out of that room. And she, you know, she wanted to go home. She was tired, and and it was clear that she thought you know they might want to hear the actual evidence of conspiracy. And when she realized they didn't, you know, everybody has to make that choice. It's like. Do I fight for this until I'm killed or do I let it go and hope that someday in the future somebody will figure it out? It was it's a horrible situation to put anybody in. And the reason I quoted her transcript at length is because they did that to everyone with witness that had witnessed evidence of conspiracy. The tapes are all bad. It's just hers is the most famous. And people are like, oh, did you interview Sandy for your book? I'm like, are you kidding? That poor girl has talked about it like a billion times by now. I wanted to talk to the people no one has interviewed before. So that's yeah. what I focused on in my book. And I went to other witnesses in the pantry who saw really interesting things, like a, a guy who was only 13 years old at the time, but he had the distinct impression that somebody was like shooting down at the crowd. And I'm like, why did you think that? And you know what made, and he saw somebody step out. There was a small space about, mm-hmm. You know, just big enough for a body to basically get in between the ice machine and a little divider portion in the wall. And the way he described it, it's like somebody was hiding there who then stepped out and shot Robert Kennedy. And interestingly enough, there is footage as Kennedy is walking to the stage through the pantry, you know, before his speech. And somebody is in that spot. And, it, and whoever it is turns their face away as the camera comes by. And I just always thought that was super interesting. And it's not footage anybody's probably seen. I don't think it's in, in anybody's documentary, but Brad Johnson had sent me a copy of that footage at some point. And I looked at him like, wow, that's really interesting. And that was before I had read this young guy's testimony and realized that's probably what he was describing. Yeah, so yeah. There's, there's video. so many yeah, Yeah, there's stuff. I'll tell you something. It's not even in my book because I couldn't prove it, but it was so interesting. And there's a video of some other guy apparently being taken out of the hotel out the back way. And there's four like big burly guys around him. And you can tell by the collar that it's not Sirhan. And it can't be Michael Wayne because he was captured in a different part of the hotel. And I'm like, so who is that guy? And why is he being escorted out, you know, with his head down and these people like protecting him and keeping him from the cameras? Very odd stuff. Yeah. That is very strange. I found that story that you mentioned in your your book and which comes up in the, in the, I think in the LAPD files. Uh, 
of someone who may have been Michael Wayne carrying like a cowhide briefcase. And like, you know, he was described as just being very strange and using an odd vocabulary and holding this briefcase like an antenna. He was like, I'm going to, I have something in here that's going to make big news, you know, big news. Right. It looked like, like a right. gun, right? Yeah. Like, it seemed like he had a gun and a girl reached for it and he like jerked it away, but it was just very strange. Very said strange. like, I hate people with money or something like that. Like, yeah. Just really weird uh, right. comments. Yeah. Apropos of like very little is like, do you want to buy a drink or something? And he was like, no, I hate people with money, like money to buy a drink like you know it's not that much money but yeah. just yeah, it reminded us of kind of the the proverbial mibs that have popped up yes, in other did. strange cases around i don't know like ufo sightings in that or, year in that year and i think uh, like Moth the mothman thing and i mean not to you know it's very different categories of uh, yeah. conspiracy yeah, we're talking about please keep none, those separate let's please keep yeah yeah but i mean i mean just in the idea of like one weird, has a really uh, valid paper trail and one really doesn't oh it doesn't yeah. it doesn't it, it's yeah, just yeah. like the idea of um some of these yeah. uh, strange well, like cases of like things happening and there, there are these individuals also, that pop up uh, i think kind of impersonating it, feds yeah, well, yeah, but here's some, also yeah. the thing. I think people think that all CIA people are like super James Bond professional and they get in, they get out, and they're always super, you know, prepared. But that's not how it always works. They hire people off the street to, to give themselves, you know, they want to remove themselves as much as possible. Agency employees don't go out and commit assassinations. Totally. Agency employees manage other people who manage other people who get the assassins. So you're several steps removed. And whoever trained the team that day, that plot was leaking like a sieve. There were at least four people trying to sound the alarm that Kennedy would be killed that night, and no one was listening. And, you know, that is also frightening. And I remember, you know, because I've been in politics, and I ended up working on Howard Dean's campaign in later years. And I remember seeing him at an event. And just watching him super carefully because I was worried somebody might try and kill him. And everywhere I went, I kept thinking, it's like, oh, my God, it'd be so easy to kill him here or there. Oh, my God. You know, he just lets people walk right up to him. And, you know, if if somebody had threatened him, I would have paid close attention. And if anybody's ever at a political event and you hear somebody make a threat, even if it sounds like it's in joke, tell somebody else, you know, alert the media. Because, yeah, it's, yeah, it's odd that like four people, four separate people were saying something is going to happen tonight. Kennedy's in danger. And this is a guy whose older brother, the president, had just been murdered five right. years prior that there wouldn't be. I know that the the kind of the, I guess the, the official lore is that, well, I guess it's true that after Robert Kennedy's assassination, they started assigning Secret Service detail to candidates, right? right? And they right. did. Right, that was, was why, the last time. right, because... Yeah, that was the yeah, first time that it I mean, yeah, you had this Air Force veteran, what, go up to the desk at the Ambassador Hotel and say that I think something bad's going to happen tonight, right? Yeah, and you well, he said strange... they're going to kill him here, and he drew a map. And when I tried to get that map That's from the right. California State Archives, that evidence had been replaced. It was very yeah. clearly checked in as a little map on paper with red and black pencil. Yeah, And then when, when the archivist looked at it, she goes oh it's just an envelope with like little torn parts of a letter and i'm like somebody literally went in and changed the evidence that's the, like you if know that isn't evidence of revision i don't know oh, what yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's the thing. there are so much of that there are so many odd things around here that just like do seem to kind of like go off and like i think maybe i think as you sort of indicated like either 
they are not following every lead because they already have a foregone conclusion in mind, or they're just we just don't have everything that they probably have a combination of both. We both don't have like everything that they came up with, but also like they didn't investigate fully. One crazy thing, which you might recall, is like that story of the guy who was picked up by like a cab driver on like June 1st. And he had like these metal discs. Do you remember the story like that? And he picked up two people, a boy and a girl. And he was very intent on giving like roses with these discs in them to Kennedy uh, oh yeah, yeah. yeah and and I, like it sounded like the roses were bugged or something. Yeah, but yeah. then they analyzed them, and they were neither explosives nor like any identifiable like electronic recording device. Even though that's kind of yeah. what he implied they might be. Like, why? Like, are these just like weirdos like who are out there who then like in the haze like around this stuff get like picked up in the hubbub and like people call these things mm-hmm. in? Like, you know, this weird event happened. Or like, was that a failed you know, plot? Exactly. Like, thing. was or, or was it put was... out there as part of this confusion, right. this haze of confusion, to create more right. doubt? Yeah, you know. Yeah, because people often say it's like, well, everything had to go so perfectly for a plot that size to work, and I'm like, how do we know this was their first attempt? We don't. True. You know, there was a, supposedly a Sirhan or a lookalike sighting in Oregon when Kennedy he actually lost that particular primary, but there may have been a plot that didn't come off there. Yeah, and there, there was a, he was also seen in Las Vegas at a church, right? Allegedly yeah, serving yeah. Him. Yes, Although right. Someone I, I who looked just like him. Field test. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that was a field test, and so we do have to talk about hypnosis. I, I know it's like I said, oh, yeah, it's a yeah. five hundred page book with eight hundred footnotes, so it may seem like we're jumping around. Yeah. it's a tough story to tell, and that's why it well, took everyone me should read years the book. You know, like yeah. don't just listen to this interview or this podcast. Like read the book. You know, like that's yeah, what you yeah. should do. Uh, yeah, because I tried to lay it out very sequentially, yes. but um, it's clear to me after all my research that Sirhan was in a hypnotic state, and a lot of other researchers have reached that conclusion too. He was kind of robotic when he was firing. He had supernatural strength, which is one of the common signs of hypnosis. Mm-hmm. He's literally holding off Rosie Greer, a football tackle, yeah. and he's this little five four jockey sized guy, you know, <laughs> very light, you know, thin, not a lot of muscle on him, and. And they couldn't get the gun out of his hand. He was just yeah. intent on firing all the bullets, which happened in another case. And I have a quote from another um, hypnotist. Actually, this is in an article. It's not even in my book. It's an article I wrote prior to the book where a hypnotist described like a murder scene where the guy couldn't stop firing. And he's like, yeah, that guy was hypnotically programmed to fire. When you see somebody that intent and they won't stop, that's usually a sign yeah, George Plimpton, who himself was a CIA author, which a lot of people don't know, yeah. but uh, he ended up tackling Sirhan, and he's like, I can't tell you anything about him except his eyes. His eyes were so big and so calm and so peaceful. Well, that sounds like he probably had dilated pupils, which is yeah. also what one of the policemen noticed, yeah. and that is one of the signs of hypnosis you can't fake. So if he was hypnotized, it would make sense that he would look calm and peaceful, even as he's being tackled and struggling, because his eyes would be big and brown and wide and 
Totally, yeah. totally. We yeah. I mean, we did a few hypnosis. Yeah. And some of the figures that you mentioned, like George Estabrooks and yep. uh, Milton yes, Erickson, right. Milton Erickson, like all, you know, these, uh, and, uh, uh, Edward, what was it? Was William Joseph Bryan. William Joseph Bryan. Yeah. Right. Not yeah. Can yeah, you clear yeah. up for us, Lisa? Uh, is he related to William Jennings? Bryan? He is related. Because I could, I could have sworn he was. Well, he, just he, claims the same name. That. Yeah. he claims that now, whether he is or not, I, I've never tried to track that down, but he uh, certainly says that. And okay. he's such a pompous liar that I don't know if it's true. Huh. Wow, I kind of yeah. We uh, I think we had assumed he's that absolutely he, he tried yeah. to draw that connection. Yeah. Right. I yeah. think he's. I had seen some book that maybe it was like Operation Mind Control that miss uh, that miss listed his name as William Jennings Bryan the third. Yeah. Which I guess he wasn't because his yeah. middle name yeah. is Joseph. Yeah. Nonetheless, very yeah. sketchy MK Ultra scientist. What What's really interesting is there was a Joseph Bryan Bryan spelled the same way b-r-y-a-n who worked for the cia at that time so it was like a and he was in their like psychological operations so to me that would be the more interesting relationship but i've never had time to track that down but i suspect they could well be related (laughs) yeah yeah yeah. Yeah. uh, one of our listeners at one time like dug up a crazy you know uh i think like probably one of the only like uh acknowledged stories of something like this happening but it was like in the 19th century some hypnotist like hypnotized a police officer and he ended up just like oh, that, was in my book. that was in the book yes, yeah yeah that was in yugoslavia yes right yes yeah. and he like I continued to be like a police the first to resurface that yeah. yeah oh great yeah okay right i remember yeah so uh, the hypnotist yes. Yeah, the hypnotist handed him a block of wood to a policeman, uh, you know, a volunteer in his stage act, and told him to shoot the audience, thinking he would do it with the block of wood. Well, the policeman tried the block of wood, and nothing happened, so he pulled out his gun, which he had on him, and fired into the audience and actually killed somebody and wounded several others. And, of course, it was a big news story, and he was taken down to the station, and he couldn't believe what had happened. People have no idea how really powerful hypnosis is. And I saw this up close. I, When I was kind of in that chapter, I went to all the hypnosis shows I could find in the area. And, you know, some of them are better than others. And, and there's always people up there faking, you know, so you have to leave that. But one, one show I went to just blew my mind because I had talked to this woman before she was a volunteer in the show for like 20 minutes before the show. We were both in the front row and she was very normal, very nice, just chatty next door neighbor type person. And, and then she gets up on stage and she's hypnotized and she was given a piece of play money, like a monopoly hundred dollar bill type thing and told it was a $35,000 check. And she got all excited as you would expect. Well, at the end of the show, he unhypnotized everybody, and I went up to talk to the hypnotist because I wanted to talk to him about Sirhan. So, and, you know, after all, he'd signed his autographs and done his thing, I started talking about that, and he, like, almost ran out of the area. He did not want to talk about that case. Too young to have been involved. I mean, no way he had any personal involvement, but he, he was just a case that he clearly knew about and did not want to talk about, which, which was an interesting in itself. But what happened after that is... The crowd's clearing, and this woman I had met before the show is still there, and she's looking distressed. And I thought, oh, she probably lost her family or something. So I went up to her, and you know, I, I'm like, are you okay? What's going on? She's like, well, I have to give this back. And I'm like, well, it's just play money. I don't think he cares. And she goes, no, it's a $35,000 check. And at that point, I kind of freaked out because I'm like, oh, my God, she's still hypnotized. And you would not have known. She looked exactly as normal as she had before the show. 
there was nothing visibly to say she was hypnotized, but she was in the grip of a hypnotic illusion that was not real. And I thought, I wonder if I can bring her out of this, <laughs> you know, <laughs> naively thinking that was possible because it's not. And I tried. I, I'm like, can we hold that together? Can we pull it closer? Can I, let's, what does it say up here in the top right? Can you make that out? It looks like a hundred. And she said, no, it's a $35,000 check and I have to give it back. And I just, my heart was breaking because it's like, oh my God, I'm worried this woman's going to go home, look up the hypnotist and send him a $35,000 check because she feels so <laughs> guilty about this. And I thought, you know, what a terrible scam that would be. <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's. But, it's, it's interesting. The power of it is incredible. It, and it's treated like a parlor trick entertainment thing. Right. I think you quoted somebody saying that, like, this should be outlawed. They should not have, you know, uh, thankfully, like, hypnosis shows aren't as popular in America. And that's a good thing because they yes, really should is. be outlawed because they're incredibly yeah. dangerous. Yeah. And clearly, they don't fully remove the suggestions from your mind. And one of the books I read, again, I think this was in an earlier article before my book, but a guy thought a dog was nipping his heels during the show, and the hypnotist never really removed that suggestion. for like So for like the next 20 years, he would just randomly feel a dog nipping at his heel that was not there. Can you imagine? Yeah. What a horrible thing to have, yeah. you know, follow you around through life. A friend of and mine had an experience of like, you know, she a hypnotist hypnotized her to feel like extreme pain, like when she wasn't like obeying him or something oh, and then she had to thankfully she was able to get in touch with like a friend who was able to like unbrainwash her but uh you oh know it, yeah yeah but it's, it's something that i think is interesting in the context of of sirhan sirhan in this connection is the rosicrucian thing because he was interested in sort of techniques of uh mental projection and things like that and i think yeah if you write it consider- down it will happen and yes yeah. exactly <laughs> uh, and i think that maybe like in that context like that's a great way to like prime someone so you mentioned like another uh which i actually hadn't heard of like another rosicrucian connected assassination plot uh, yeah, yeah that, that you fascinating. Your book. Yeah, Jorge Gaetan in yes. the late 40s, right? Yes. Yeah. He was kind of the Bobby Kennedy of Columbia, you know, when he was killed. And so it, it makes you wonder if intelligence agencies don't have connections to like the Rosicrucians. And it's like, oh, here's somebody who seems really interested in this. Let's see if they're susceptible. It's funny, there was a report that Sirhan was going to go to a Rosicrucian meeting that night. And originally, it was reported by the people at the meeting that he had showed up. And then then it suddenly became like a big deal. They went up the chain and suddenly he hadn't been there that night. Well, all those, he also requested, right, all those theosophical books in jail and things like that. And they were all like very concerned to like try to tamp down on that. But yeah, I mean, I think what you say in your book is very persuasive that like these groups could have been used as spotters. And that's what a lot of people, I think, we're really saying at the time about like organizations like that, that they were like very much infiltrated in cl- groups about right. all sorts of things, UFO cults, etc. Like, but especially these oh, yeah. like, organizations. Oh, wind up doll, everyone knows. Wind it up and away it goes. It does the things it's taught to do. I guess I'm kind of a wind-up dolly, too. Every morning when I get up to say, I wish that son of a gun were alive, that I wouldn't have to be here now. A doctor, we need a doctor right here in the microphone, please, immediately. 
started searching for coffee. And that was all that I wanted to do. And I found some. In the kitchen area? But where, I don't remember, sir. In a kitchen-type room? I don't remember where I saw it, but I, I remember getting the cup. It was a shining... Larger? Urn. And uh, there was a girl there. No, 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 I don't remember much what, I, what happened after that. You don't remember? I don't remember. Do you remember anything? Other than the choking and, uh, and the commotion. I don't remember that. On May 18th last year, you were sitting and writing in your room. They're, they're the writings of a maniac. They're the writings of Sirhan Sirhan. Yes, they're not the writings of me now. I'm not mentally ill, but I'm not perfect either. If you had three wishes, what would they be? The first wish, then. I wish that Senator Kennedy was still alive. I wish that every day that I've been here. Second one. I noticed this that like for some reason this is more of like maybe this is more of a meta observation but the fact that Robert Kennedy was killed in Los Angeles in 1968 it never gets like paired with everything else that was going on in Los Angeles at that time like what was going on in Laurel Canyon like what was going the Manson family was already circulating around LA at that time you had like you know uh, Tim Leary Owsley Stanley down in Watts like cooking up vats of acid you had apparently the Rosicrucians you know uh, doing their thing and I don't know if the Process Church was kind of running around but you had a lot of these kind of culty kind of organizations Organizations. I mean, just in California in general, but oh, particularly yeah. in L.A. I mean, also one of the people you brought up that doesn't really get talked about a lot in terms of uh, the black arts of magic and sleight of hand and deception uh-huh. is John Mulholland, yes. who was a magician <laughs> in Los Angeles who worked for the CIA and actually taught them, you know, sleight of hand kind of tricks. He was associated, I think, with the Magic Castle. You familiar with that place? I've Hollywood? been there, but I didn't know he was from L.A. Where did you get that? Because I've actually uh, John Mulholland. <laughs> Yeah, I have. Well, the he book was based Mulholland, in LA, I haven't read right? the whole thing. Pardon? Oh, was it? He, I thought he was based in Los Angeles. For some um, reason, I thought he was back east, but uh, it, but it doesn't matter because here's the yeah. thing. Yeah, a magician t- teaching CIA agents sleight of hand, how to quickly poison somebody's drink without them noticing it. Yep. You know, all kinds of and and really, my first article on this case, my first big article, was called "The Grand Illusion" because I argue. The whole scene was set up like a magic act, and Sirhan was there to pull your focus so that you would think he was killing Kennedy when in reality other people were. And the evidence for that is actually pretty strong because, again, first of all, Sirhan's in front of Kennedy, and his first shot, he would have had a completely wide-open shot of Robert Kennedy's chest. Kennedy was completely exposed. He's facing Sirhan. If Sirhan were firing bullets he would have hit Kennedy in the chest on his first shot. He couldn't have missed. His arm was right there 
directly in front of him, perfect line of fire. Instead, Kennedy is shot three times under the arm from a back-to-front angle and one time right behind his right ear, also back-to-front. So it's just impossible for Sturan to have fired that. Now, again, here's where I part ways with the other researchers who they all kind of assume, well, but there were other people shot. It must have been Sirhan having three assassins would just be overkill. Well, no, it's a magic act. He's pulling focus and they don't want to leave it to any one other assassin. And so I actually found two witnesses and one I'm going to name in my next, if I (laughs) ever update this, and at some point I will, but I, I now have the name of one witness who I couldn't find the name of in time for my book, but two witnesses saw a guy in a white busboy uniform go up to Kennedy's head and shoot him. And yes, one guy, right. yeah, one guy was certain that was Sirhan, and of course it wasn't because Sirhan was not in a white busboy uniform, nor was he behind Kennedy. Yeah. But the other was George Plimpton's wife, Freddie Plimpton, That's and, right. and she had been at an event a week earlier in San Francisco where fireworks had gone off, and everybody thought somebody was firing at Robert Kennedy. And guess what? Maybe somebody was. Maybe that was, again, one of those failed plots that didn't work. Maybe it was a test run to see how everyone would react. Well, that's what I think. I think, yeah, if you fire at somebody and then you see which way is he going to duck, you know, and then you put somebody in the right position. Because I I think people, again, they both, they give too much credit to the CIA in one hand, and then they undercredit them on the other. When it comes to planning something like this, they, they rehearse it, they go through it, they stage it, they... You know, they, I mean, there's a good article by Eugenio Martinez, one of the Watergate burglars, and I think he co wrote it with, I want to say E. Howard Hunt, but I don't remember, but he co wrote it with somebody else. And they talk about how they rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed the break in over and over and, you know, what they would do. And not just that, but he's like, all operations are like that. If it's an operation, you plan it, you rehearse it. That's why it used to be called the, the directorate of plans because they have plans they don't go wing it they don't just put a bunch of assassins in a room they have a plan and the plan very much seemed to be let sirhan step out don't worry you don't have to duck because he's not firing bullets he'll be firing blanks you're not in danger but when you hear the shots you do your shots and then get the heck out of there except for thane caesar who was a guard, you know, kind of had a reason to be there. So Thane Caesar was oh, holding right Kennedy's, Kennedy, uh, Thane was holding Kennedy's right arm and Kennedy was shot under the right arm. And he was literally holding his elbow. I mean, no one was in a better position to shoot Kennedy three times under the arm than Thane Eugene. And nobody would have seen it because he already would have been, he, I assume his holster was on his right side, but he easily could have just drawn his gun low and fired under and like he's upwards. a big guy. Yeah, because mm. Robert Kennedy is not that big. He's like 5'8". And Caesar was six feet something. I think he was six feet one or something. And and heavy. So he's a big guy. He could easily hide the gun with his own body and make the shots. And no one would see it. Now, the one thing is, if Caesar did pull out his gun and try and fire behind the ear, Caesar would have been totally exposed. Yeah. And it's not only for that reason that I don't think Caesar made the, the final shot. I really do believe the two witnesses who saw the guy in the white busboy uniform. And Freddie was also very disturbed because she's like, I didn't see a gun. I don't know why I didn't see a gun. 
but there were a number of concealed devices that you could. I was thinking about that yeah. as I read through your your uh, yeah, like the the different accounts in the pantry that the CIA. I mean, it's like when B- Bill Colby went to Congress in the seventies and held up like the heart attack gun. I know this is right. a pen, this is a fountain pen that actually has a bullet in it. That mm-hmm. they totally could have been a device like that, where just somebody crouched over Kennedy with a device that doesn't even look like a firearm. Right, a cigarette even, box. Even you know? something, yeah, more, even something less concealed, you know, like a Derringer really, like, can be, you know, you like a, or a Travis Bickle type contraption, like, it doesn't even need to be something like that, but... One of those little Saturday Night Special inside, things. Yeah, but I think that, I haven't read uh, The Grand Illusion, but I'd be very interested to read it because I think that that's a very insightful point, the idea of the magic act, because, and I think this actually does have a connection, you know, People often, I think we've mentioned this on our show in the past, like people often draw this like very sharp distinction between, you know, uh, the parlor magic or the sort of theatrical sort of fake like magic with a C or whatever, you know, magician magic, like top hat rabbit stuff and, Mm. you know, the occult and and that type of, uh, you know, the magic that works like, you know, hypnosis having an effect, you know, people treat it like a parlor trick. But in fact, like these things, like the arts of illusion, you know, the the dark arts, I think uh, Mulholland called Mm -hmm. them. You know, they really right. do, in a way, go hand in hand. Like, they're they're uh, always in tension yeah, and dialectic with one another. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, that, uh, it, that uh, like, the, the fact, like, the Rosicrucian element, like, the theosophical element, like, and the element of uh, stage magic and uh, the illusory qualities of the whole production, you know, the stage illusion qualities of the whole production, that, I mean, even the, the fact of the busboy uniform, like busboys, porters, bellhops, like they're all meant to be invisible. Like you're not supposed right. to see exactly. people. Yeah. Like, don't, you don't pay attention you know, to exactly. Them. Yeah. And you know, even yeah. the Unlike racial the girl in the polka dot dress, and you know, even the yeah. yeah, even the racial component factors into it because like those roles traditionally, like you know, they go to like marginal people in society, and like yeah. also yeah. those people in society are associated with like you know, especially people from the east. You know, they're associated with that, you know, uh, the magic. The exactly. The Svengali's yeah. who yeah. mesmerize. And right. also, you just because, like, realistically, in Los Angeles at the time, a lot of the, the porters and the waitstaff and stuff might might have been, you know, Mexican, oh, uh, yeah, American, or Latino. Yeah. And mm-hmm. then, of course, they could be eas- more easily mixed up with people of Middle Eastern extraction, like Sirhan. Mm-hmm. And so you get kind of, like, the broadest possible group of people where – there's going to be a lot of people of a kind of um, this some somewhat ambiguous ethnicity that kind of looks like the guy they end up catching. And it yeah. really just adds to the confusion. And I was just thinking, like, even at a normal magic show, we all take for granted that when you go to a magic show, um, I mean, maybe I'm just dumb and gullible. But most of the time when they do a trick, you realize that they're doing a trick, that it's yeah. not real. They didn't really saw the lady in half. But the mechanism by which they'd done the illusion is a, is occulted. It's a secret to you. So mm-hmm. it's like if you do it in front of everybody, but without letting them know beforehand they're watching a magic show, well, right. it, it would follow logically that you might be able to do something, at, you know, with like a very high level of um, effectiveness, like conceal what you're really doing by having Sirhan, you know, pop out the way he did. I think y- your book really sold me. I wasn't always sold on the he was firing blanks aspect of the theory but you're the way you laid everything out it makes so much more sense that he was because it it, it doesn't sound you know maybe getting back to like mk ultra and manchurian candidates and stuff 
you know, the, the canard is always that, well, we tried to give people LSD to make them assassins, but it didn't work. And there's like a grain of truth in that. <laughs> Just ask that Manson, t- it worked pretty well, right? right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. But it, it's kind of like, you know, um, it, it doesn't work in the way that maybe the Manchurian candidate but like would portray it in a, in a sense of uh, mm-hmm. they, they will go out and be like an ice cold, like Jason Bourne assassin. Right. It's very competent. Right. Right. But you could get somebody if you say if you mm-hmm. hypnotize him to think he's at the range and yeah. then he should pull out his gun and start shooting and right. buzz some um, the thing that Esther Brooks also pointed out, which you highlighted, I think the same quote that we read in our Esther Brooks episode was uh, you know, breaking down that distinction about how um whether or not whether you can hypnotize somebody exists. against their moral will, to do something right. against their moral their own moral code. And y- you've pointed out very uh, very effectively that if you convince them that they're not doing what they're really doing, then mm-hmm. you can basically get them. You know, he, he gives the story in World War II, which is before that coup in Colombia, by the way. Right. So he <laughs> he kind of claimed he could do this during in the 1940s. He got two mm-hmm. Marines, one Marine to almost kill another one. And they were best friends. But he did it by saying by by hypnotizing the guy into believing that his friend was a Japanese soldier. Exactly. And so therefore it wasn't in conflict with his actual kind of moral code because he was at war with the Japanese and et cetera. And then he jumped across the table and tried to strangle him. So right. that's clearly, uh, there's ways kind of around it. Uh, and and exactly. That, you so you, you can't get somebody to do something against their will, but you can change the reality so they don't understand what they're doing. And honestly, that is the best explanation for what happened in the pantry. Uh, yeah. Dan Brown was a hypnotist who, Unlike, uh, Sirhan was hypnotized by his de- defense, and I use that term with air quotes, his defense yeah. team, uh, right? You know, they, they wanted him to remember because Sirhan claimed, and I totally believe he does not remember what happened in the pantry because you don't when you're under hypnosis. And no amount of hypnosis can sometimes bring back the deep memories of what happened during that period. But they tried, and here's how they tried. Sirhan, there's Robert Kennedy. He's coming towards you. Reach for your gun, Sirhan. All right, do you remember shooting him? He's right there in front of you. Shoot at him. Shoot yeah, at him. Do you right. remember that? You know, it's like they were trying yeah. to implant. Even without him knowing that you can get someone, yeah. like, with a type of leading questions, you can get someone to agree to something. Yeah. Oh and I my think that God. the fact that he was firing <laughs> blanks even makes it, like, uh, even can help it in a way. Like, because I think that, like, you know, in some of these assassination setups like i think it, i think it was darren brown you mentioned his thing in your book I yes just, uh, yeah who did the sort of fake assassination of stephen fry and even used the polka right. dot dress as an element in that yeah i think that even the fact like of it of thinking it's a show of, or somewhat like you know i think knowing that there's blanks involved like can actually help it like along you know and make it easier than like if it's real weapons of course someone actually did really die you know you might have been firing blanks but in this case not everybody was. right yeah. right yeah um, well you brought up the comparison to the assassination of kim jong-un's brother yeah. where the girls who did it were perhaps un- i don't know if they were hypnotized but they were unwittingly recruited into a game show where it's like you gotta like rub right. this cloth on this guy's face and then yeah. they had like a vx agent on it and he died yeah one girl sprayed water the other toweled him off but when yeah. they came to Chim- you know the half brother of kim jong-un they, the, what they toweled him off with had a VX nerve agent on it that killed him a couple hours later. So how guilty was the girl? In fact, she doesn't seem to have understood what she was doing because she showed up the very next day ready for her next stunt. So good argument to be made that she was tricked into assassinating somebody without her knowledge, which I think mm-hmm. is exactly what happened to Sirhan. He was tricked into being part of a plot to assassinate 
somebody without his knowledge or direct participation, but he was the perfect patsy. Because like I said, everybody saw him fire the gun. And one of the reasons they saw him fire the gun is fire literally came out of the gun, which is also a sign of blanks. Because if you have used a small pistol, yeah. You know, there's really nothing to see. It's like nothing comes out. The it's bullet like comes out. Yeah. Sometimes, and that but type it's not of, like yeah. an Arnold Schwarzenegger. Another Hollywood yeah. component, right? right? Yeah. Isn't it I'm interesting sure that, the that they LA... use like the big flashy blanks, you know, that they use right. in movies to right. make it look cool and draw everybody's attention to it. Yeah, guns exactly. and movies. I'm sure. Yeah, they can make you sound differently than real guns. You know, the firecracker stuff. Like, you know, they yeah. they sound more impressive. Like the Wild West shows. I'm sure that the uh, LA QJ Win office was like very well uh, experienced in, in these type of things. And I'm oh fact, my God. Yeah. Yeah. Can I we do, talk about yeah, the QJ yeah. Wynn office? Yes, I, I want to yeah. talk about that because I talked to Dan Hardway, who was on the House Select Committee of Assassinations in the 70s. And when I mentioned that I had seen this document, which John Newman had given to an author, the guy who wrote about the Frank Olson case, I'm blanking on his name. Uh, I've got the book right here. Hold on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Alborelli, Hank Alborelli. So John Newman found his document. He gave it to Hank Alborelli, who gave it to me. And and when I told Dan Hardway about it, he goes, "Wow!" During the church committee, they always made such a big deal that QJ Win was a person and not like a crypt for an operation. So now, if you're talking about a QJ Win office, and here's the other thing, I found a document that I wasn't supposed to find, and it had. QJ slash this, QJ slash that, and real yeah. names next to it. And one of them was Jerry Patrick Hemming, who has showed up many times in the JFK assassination story. So mm. he was one of the CIA's assassins. He's always denied. It's like, well, you can't prove I was ever CIA, but obviously <laughs> we worked together. And, well, you can prove it. There was the document right there. When I took it to get copied, it disappeared because that was the agreement that the ARC had with uh, I guess the agency is that anything that slipped through that had real names in it had to go away. So I never got that back and I should have written it all down before I handed it off to be copied. Lesson learned. <laughs> but I'll never forget it. You can't forget seeing a document like that with so QJ was definitely QJ Win was a much bigger thing than just one person. And yeah, there's a document at a QJ Win office in Los Angeles and you know, what does that imply? That they had a bunch yeah. of assassins on the soil here in Los Angeles. Well, I think, yeah, because um, as you yeah. mentioned, yeah, it's mostly, most of the stuff that QJ1 was doing was like killing Patrice Lumumba, you know, like doing this regime change operations like in the Near East, you know, it's bringing back to the sort of Bath connection, you know, uh, something that you mentioned mm -hmm. is the, you know, the Bath party in Iraq, like going out and just murdering like all the sort of uh, intellectuals they identified as being Soviet sympathetic with like lists provided yeah. by the CIA and that, you know, you uh, associate with the QJ win. So imagine like my that. surprise that, yeah, when, I right. when Robert Blair Kaiser's editor at Time Life ended up being the guy who provided kill lists to the CIA in Beirut. Yeah, that was William <laughs> and McHale, Robert Blair right? Kaiser was a part of Sirhan's quote-unquote defense team. If, <laughs> if Kaiser's boss was working for the CIA, was Kaiser working for the CIA too? Is that why his book insists that Sirhan was a lone assassin, even though he told me, Lisa, I wrote Cooper a memo about the distance issue and how it was problematic for Sirhan to have killed him. But Cooper, you know, said, oh, we're not going to go there or something. We're just going to ignore that. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
Wow. Yeah, Sirhan never got. Here's the other thing. People say, well, Sirhan had a trial. We all saw it on TV. No, you didn't because it wasn't broadcast on TV. You saw the reports at the end of the day about the trial and pictures. But uh, those the trial lovely itself. Washington Post articles, right? By uh, George Lardner Jr. Yeah, Lardner Jr. And then another guy um, who. I've always thought it was a CIA asset, and evidently I'm not the only one with that opinion. <laughs> and again, I, I'm blanking on the name. He's written several books very favorable to the CIA and the FBI. Kessler, Ronald okay. Kessler. Yeah. And yeah, when when a discrepancy showed up in the evidence, because there, there are a lot of dishonest people in law enforcement, but there are some really honest people in law enforcement too. Sure. And one of them was Bill Harper, who worked in Pasadena. He was a former OSS member and some of the LAPD guys were former OSS, and so he kept in touch with his buddies. And they told him early on, look, they switched the gun, they switched the bullets. So he was very curious, and he decided to do his own investigation, and he knew that the LAPD's criminalist, Dwayne Wolfer, was a big fat liar, basically. Oh, yes, he was. <laughs> yeah. Yes, he was. I mean, so much so that he was like a joke years later in like the 80s. There was an article they in the They called LA it Times. getting like Wolferism Yeah, or a Wolferism. You know, it's like, yeah, somebody pulled a Wolfer, you know, basically <laughs> faking the evidence and pretending you had a bullet match when you didn't. Oh, and, yeah, he did and, so much shady stuff with the evidence and the, yeah. the different numbers on the evidence bags for the gun. I yeah, mean, well, here's none of the, the bullets. thing. It's clear that the Kennedy neck bullet was changed. It's clear that the Goldstein bullet was changed. And it's pretty clear that the Wiesel bullet was not, that was finally turned into evidence, was not the real one collected. And those were the three that a panel in 1975 said, well, we can match three bullets to each other. But we couldn't really match any of the bullets to Sir Ann's gun. And they claimed that the reason for that was, oh, the gun barrel is super leaded, you know. And super and then the police leaded. said, oh, well, we took it out and we used to fire souvenir bullets through it. No, I, I don't believe that for a second because if they ever had possession of that gun, they would have fired fake bullets from that gun and put those for the panel to review. But the reason we know the bullets are fake is that when a bullet is turned into evidence, in the evidence log, there's a clear indication of what the mark on the bullet was and who saw it first and who handed it to whom and who took it then, because they have to repeat all that in court to prove that the evidence is what they say. Mm -hmm. And so in this case, the bullet removed by the coroner, Thomas Noguchi, and, and again, this is a 22 bullet. So think of like a number two pencil and the eraser of a number two pencil. If you were going to write on the yeah. eraser, you don't have a lot They're of tiny. room, right? They're very tiny. Right. And Noguchi put on that spot of the bullet, he put TN31. But the bullet that was in evidence when the 1975 panel looked at it said DWTN. Now, it's not likely that Thomas Noguchi didn't take up the entire base of the bullet and somehow <laughs> left room for DW to go above it. You know, that does not seem reasonable by any stretch of the imagination. So Dwayne Wolfer evidently fudged the bullets. Why did he switch the bullets? Because the other bullets were all similarly changed. So it only makes sense that he switched the bullets if he knew there were at least two or three different shooters and also, he had test bullets from Sir Hans gun because he had fired them. And he's yeah. already been proven in earlier cases to have switched evidence. So there's yes. no reason he wouldn't have tried to make them all look like Sir Hans if Sir Hans had fired any of the bullets. And I think the problem was it became instantly clear that he hadn't made enough test bullets <laughs> to pull that off. 
because he kept <laughs> he turned in like four of them and he kept three back all right but he didn't even use those three to dummy up the bullets because he had you know there was a record it was in the grand jury transcript that he had three test bullets and I'm sure had he known he wasn't going to be able to match it to somebody else, he would have just fired 12 bullets, you know, and given them, you know, four and said there were only seven or whatever. But uh, yeah, in yeah. any case, so you fudge the evidence because it's not matching what Sirhan fired, which also goes to the blanks. If he's firing blanks, there's no bullets to be matched, right? I think, and, yeah. And it, it makes it a lot more simple. Leaded. Yeah, the yeah, gun barrel might have been leaded because Sirhan was literally at a shooting range that whole day. There's no reason to believe he was firing copper jacketed bullets at any point in time. Yeah, I think that I definitely agree with what you say that, you know, the people might suggest that like, oh, the element of blanks, you know, or having multiple shooters makes it more complicated. And Mm -hmm. it might be, you know, it's just this element, you know, he was just mind controlled or something like that. But I think that actually having the elements together, like makes it more plausible and in a way like as dimitri kind of just said it actually does make it in a way more simple or at least more efficacious or like more in the the same way that a magic act you know when it all comes together it actually is quite elegant even though there can be any number of like moving parts you know like if you see even the simplest magic trick where you make birds disappear or something that actually has like all sorts of like things there's like a back that has to be released you know to make the birds go away and like you have to you know and it seems like actually pretty complicated when you go through the steps but when you actually see it in like actually happen it's just like the it birds disappeared. So yeah, the, you know, the yeah. birds are gone. They were there and now they're gone, you know, but. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And something I found after I wrote my book was there was a plot against Jimmy Carter in the, in 1979. And the, they stumbled upon it because a guy was test firing a blank gun. He was to serve as the distraction while the other mm. shooters killed Jimmy Carter. So this is a thing. And, yeah. and the guy's name, you you can't make this up. His real name was Raymond Lee Harvey. Wow. <laughs> and one of his co-conspirators was using the name Osvaldo. So there you go. It's Osvaldo. Like, That's it, just like the guy. There was clear. a guy in Spain years yeah. ago who like didn't had something to do with the, the DPRK and he, but it, like his name was Oswaldo. I forget. Never mind. But the, like that seems to be a recurring theme. You still see. Yeah, uh, people, it's almost like, like they like to echo it so that it's always in our mind. The lone assassin, all except in this case, it wasn't a lone assassin, and a guy shooting blanks was part of the plot. And there's yeah. some evidence even yeah, in the yeah. Rabin assassination. Thing. It's yeah. A, yeah, yeah, John, always going back to John Wilkes Booth. Got to have the three names, you know. Uh, <laughs> but. Yeah. Well, Sirhan Bashara Sirhan. I mean, yeah. just yeah. to be fair, he does have a middle yeah. name. <laughs> yes. I just didn't report it, but yes. Yes. Um, yeah, we actually have been, we haven't plumbed into it uh, very deeply, but we have been kind of intrigued by some stuff around the attempted assassination of Gerald Ford. And uh, oh, what yeah. happened? have you looked into well, the that? Two yeah. Yeah. You mentioned two it in attempts the book I saw. Yeah. yeah. I remember that vividly because he had driven by my house that day and I had stepped out wow. of my front porch to, and I raised a camera to take a picture. And a SWAT team guy, there was like a SWAT car following the Gerald Ford's card. And a guy literally jumped off the truck and started running right at me and with a megaphone. He's like, put that down, put the camera down. And I'm like, I'm a kid. What's a camera? Why can't I take a picture? And it wasn't until years later I found out because the CI puts guns in cameras. And so for all they knew, I was the assassin. I was like, I was like right there. (laughs) Well, you did mention something that I think I forgot to mention um, 
either in our like Rumsfeld episode when we talked to Joe Green, but was that uh, she was Sarah Jane Moore, the the second woman to shoot, uh, was yeah. a confirmed FBI informant. Oh yeah, leading yeah. up to the shooting. And she was detained by the Secret Service for almost 24 hours before the shooting. And then 12 hours after they release her, she's out there shooting Gerald <sighs> And she it's, would have. It's, like, you can't make that up, right? I mean, yeah. And she would have put a, a final, well, like I think you pointed out very astutely, that she would have finally put a Rockefeller in the White House. And Nelson right. Rockefeller had run for president three times. He right. was the he was an unelected vice president. He was appointed. Right. Gerald Ford himself was not. The only elected. unelected president we've had. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and notice yeah. When, when the CIA through Watergate went after Richard Nixon, they went after the vice president first because they had to get Ford in place. Ford yeah. had been on the Warren Commission. Ford had yep. changed the location of John Kennedy's neck wound and moved it up. You know, so they'd be more in line with a shot from the sixth floor book depository. He literally moved the wound six inches in pencil, you know, by scratching out where it was and writing it in a new location. Well, as George Bush said at his funeral, you know, we always knew we could trust Jerry Ford, you know, basically. For that, he gets to be president, you know. Yeah. 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 And he was a Hoover informant, too. I mean, it's like he would sell his soul to anybody. And for that, he got rewarded with the presidency. Uh, Yeah. So... Yeah, and and uh, Squeaky Fromm, who had uh, tried mm-hmm. to kill Ford first, you know, was a Manson devotee. She was yeah. one of the Manson girls. You she know, was. it's she like, was. and I I have always thought that Manson was like programming assassins for the CIA or like part of their yeah. test program or something. Totally, I absolutely and, agree. You know, yeah. There's that really good book, which I assume I hope you've read by now. Um, Manson and the CIA, or whatever the name chaos. of it is. Yeah, it's yeah, chaos. Yeah. Yes, it yeah. Is. yeah, yeah. Yeah, and he can't yeah. quite connect the dots, but it's so close. So well, I mean, close. I kept getting these, like, flashbacks of, and again, it's like, they, we don't talk about this enough, that the Manson murders happened, like, basically about a 69? year after uh, 69, yeah. August 69, yeah. so about 14 months after Bobby Kennedy was murdered in Los Angeles, and the similarities yeah. between... Yeah. You know, Sirhan being kind of like, you know, hypnotized and all these other strange people like moving around the Ambassador Hotel and then what Manson was doing. I mean, mm-hmm. and then whatever was going on at Lookout Mountain Air Force Base. And, you know, it just it, it's there were spooky vibes uh, going on in Los Angeles at that yeah. time. That, yeah. uh, even some of the prosecutors like Evel Younger was the guy who prosecuted both. And God, when you look at his resume, yikes. Well, again, um, he's OSS. And OSS, OSS for your listeners East, are right? is the forerunner of the CIA, OSS, the Office of Strategic Services. And yeah, and I was reading an OSS book and I found Evel Younger's, you know, name in there. And I'm like, oh my God, that's the same guy. All this history is connected. The more you read, the more you see that everybody knows everybody. It's all connected. It's yeah, not yeah. it's not conspiracy theory when there's these underlying patterns that repeat over and over it's in the rfk case it's a hundred percent conspiracy fact and somebody said that in one of my amazon reviews i'm like oh thank you because it's it's so obvious there are too many bullets to have been fired from sir hand's gun the the fbi took photos of four bullet holes in the pantry one night while looking at video at ucla i found video of two of those bullet holes and it's really obvious they're bullet holes and there's a hand that turns over they pulled the paneling off the front of the doorpost. If you have an old doorpost in your place, look mm-hmm. around. There's usually like a thin strip of wood on, you know, in, in front of the door, the door frame. Well, that part had been pried off, and there's two holes in the part that had been pried off, 
and then two holes where the bullets obviously went through that and into the post, into the wall. And this is on video. And when I saw it, I'm like, oh my God, if people knew what this is showing, this video would not be here. And so I literally called Jim DiEugenio, a longtime friend and collaborator. <laughs> yeah. And he lived like an hour away. I said, Jim, I'm not going home. You've got to drive up here right now and see this. And I'm not going to tell you why. <laughs> Just get up here. And he trusted me and he did. And then we sat there for like the next you know, hour talking about it. And and uh, so if they didn't know they had something hot before, they did by the time we left there. But I, <laughs> yeah. I went, like, the next day I went and bought, like, the rights to, like, six seconds of that video because I knew if I didn't say something, that video would disappear. Mm. Now, Shane O'Sullivan said he used his documentary, but I swear he had, did not use the bullet hole portion, which is also very interesting because that shows he didn't understand the significance of it. <laughs> Wow. You know, there, like I said, there are a lot of researchers, but not everybody is equally sharp, equally able to connect the dots. And I'm not trying to put anybody down. It's just we all have our different skill sets. And for whatever reason, it's like, you know, the bullets, I thought, really told the story to me. So I was deeply interested. And like I said, as soon as I saw that, I thought, that's the Zapruder film of the yeah. RFK case. I mean, it's yeah. the absolute proof of conspiracy. There's no way. There's no way that yeah. there could be bullet holes in that door frame if right, Sirhan Sirhan fired seven eight bullets. bullets were removed from bodies and one was lost in the ceiling space. And that was the LAPD's way of accounting for the three bullet holes they acknowledged were in the ceiling, even yeah. though there's like five ceiling tiles missing in their pantry examination photos. <laughs> so there yeah. were probably a lot more than three bullets. And that's the other thing. There was a, a photographer, Carl's, Charles Collier, and he said, oh, there were bullets in the walls. And it's like, I'm talking only about the door frames. And so Dan Moldea said, do you mean door frames or do you mean walls? He goes, oh, no, no, I mean the walls, too. There were bullets in the walls. So there were way too many bullets, even for two guns. I mean, this is... Mm -hmm thing and people like but if Sirhan's firing blanks that means there's at least three gunmen I'm like I have evidence of at least four gunmen in the pantry and again this is the thing if everybody's looking at Sirhan and everybody else has a gun that's hidden or doesn't even look like a gun and they're firing it everybody's assuming all the bullets are coming from Sirhan's gun because they don't have yeah. a frame of reference they don't know what they're really seeing and the yeah. police made sure to reinforce that whenever they saw somebody they're like oh was it Sirhan you know did it look like this guy you know pick out a photo and you know there's Sirhan and they've all seen him on the tv news after a certain point and oh yeah that's reinforced pretty quickly exactly yeah, there definitely is a lack of thoroughness that you can sometimes see or a lack of like, you know, I the the more like I've done this podcast and like been kind of like in the world of like, uh, you know, things that are in the sort of like, quote unquote, like conspiracy universe. Like, you know, I've, I felt that people often need to like sort of slow down and they often have like blinders on and in certain ways. But, you know, I really do appreciate like people who have imagination. Like, I think that's really great because it allows you to like see connections that others might not. But at the same time, like you need to kind of combine those two things. Like you need the rigor right. as well as the imagination to like see the connections because the, you know, if you, yeah. And some people it's yeah. true don't have either, but yes, I when just. When I started this, I really didn't know if Sirhan had fired blanks or not. I mean, I read that in one book and it made sense to me, but I really wanted to know. It's like, if he fired bullets, I was going to say that it's. I mean, I did the same thing when I'm like, did Bobby Kennedy authorize the Castro plots or not? I really looked into that in depth, and I promised myself, whatever the truth, I'm going to tell it. If he authorized it, he did. If he didn't, he didn't. 
And I found that he didn't, by the way. You know, the CIA admitted in their own files that Bobby Kennedy had never authorized plots against Castro. But same thing with, I didn't reach out to Munir Sirhan until I was almost done with my book because I, I didn't want to give him false hope. And I didn't want to have to take his side because I knew him. I wanted to make sure I could be objective about that. But mm. after, you know, as I was fishing, it was so obvious to me that Sirhan was as much a victim of a pantry shooting as Robert Kennedy was, but one lost his life entirely and one lost his life to jail and you know which is a different thing and but i did reach out to munir and i'm like you know what i your brother you know needs to get out and and i want to help and you know you wait and see what i do with my book and the, the sad thing is that almost everybody who was alive at the time is now too old to read <laughs> so it's like <laughs> trying to get people to read my book even paul schrade he's like lisa i can't read anymore i'm like oh my god paul you know you of all people i need you to understand this evidence and and paul has always been emotionally wedded to the fact that he was shot by sirhan and so he does yeah. not want to hear blanks he rejects okay. that at every turn and he won't take the time to understand the evidence, which is really unfortunate because he's a really great guy. And I used to go to activist events around town because they said I've been in political, you know, from for a long time. He would always be there. He was one of those guys that would always show up to do the work. You know, he's just a good guy. But yeah. it's like a blind spot for him in the same way that it's a blind spot for the Kennedy children. And sure. You know, yeah. and he never wanted to be painted as a conspiracy theorist. And so it's like he's you know, basically tried to stick to the LAPD did a bad job and we need to reinvestigate, which is okay. But my my more realistic, I think, point of view is that we're never going to get a reinvestigation. I have to do it. You have to do it. We all have to like dig in and learn about these things. And it's going to take somebody with passion and years <laughs> because, you know, no journalist is going to be assigned this. Even if a, if, even if an amazing editor said i'll give you four years to find out what really happened to bobby you can't learn the case in four years it really does take like 25 years i can say that i know things and other people say well, you believe it i say don't you believe it but i know it because <laughs> i've been in the records and i have more data than you and i can only put so much of it in the book but there's like for every page of data there's like 1500 pages backing up that one page of data and I Absolutely. can't dump all that out for you, nor would you want to read that. <laughs> but I did. I read the the forty five hundred page, you know, five hundred and forty page, five thousand. I'm trying to say the trial transcript. I think it's like five thousand four hundred and ninety pages or something like that. I read the whole thing. It took me a few months because you know you can only read so much in a day. And it's just amazing. Like, so when I say it was a show trial, I know it was a show trial. You can believe me or not, but if you read the trial transcript, then you too will know that it was a show trial. Oh, yeah, it and certainly only, comes through. Yeah, yeah. They only brought up witnesses to, again, use it as a chance to discredit conspiracy. Yeah. <laughs> and speaking of witnesses, maybe one of the last ones um, that... I'm kind of interested in, and this is a guy that really doesn't get, you, you go really in depth on him in the book, but it's a guy that never gets brought up, but what is up with Michael Wayne and yeah. I mean, or Michael Vienne, uh, as he yeah. was also known, <laughs> he's like a, really a character out of a pension novel. And now it, it's almost after reading your book, maybe, I don't know if you've seen or read Inherent Vice, um, no. the film that, oh, I think you would love it. It takes place in 1970 in LA right, right after 
Manson and RFK and everything. But, you know, it feels like there, there's a group in that that kind of, um you know, it's very sprawling, kind of a subterranean political sort of conspiracy narrative, you know, taking place in L.A. But there's a group called Vigilant California that's kind of a right wing militia group, which is clearly, I think, based on the Minutemen. And of course, Michael Wayne had the card of what was the name of the the individual Gilbert. The Nazi Gilbert. Yeah, Gilbert. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we there... tried to blow up Martin Luther King. He like tried to put bombs at a place where Martin Luther King was speaking. Yeah, really yeah, bad. Yeah, to blow up the Hollywood Palladium. Yeah, yeah. at a Jewish yeah. dinner honoring Martin Luther King. Right. And, right. and those people obviously, I think, had a lot of like subterranean connections to law enforcement, both and intelligence. I mean, and intelligence. Yeah, the yeah, right wing and Gilbert, intelligence yeah. are all almost inseparable you know although in in later years you know the last few years there seems to be a nice split there right but, they're, they're having some uh, some <laughs> marital troubles i guess yeah um, the yeah. last few years it's not clear but yeah it's but like this is the trajectory yeah. they set us on i mean trump is the ultimate you know trajectory they put us on by lying so much in the media about the history of this country they created a whole group of people who no longer trust the media yeah. Even when they should, <laughs> even when the media is actually telling them the truth. Well, there's just no way to tell the difference anymore. You know, yeah. it's all been so, uh, so shit. Yeah. As we like to say, um, yeah. but, Michael, but, but wait, Keith you... Gilbert is a very interesting character. And Manny yeah. Pena had also had his own connections with Keith Gilbert. Cause that was one of his big early cases with the LAPD. But yeah, so this guy, Michael Wayne, he goes around the hotel. He is, talking people out of their press badges mm -hmm. and telling people he's a collector of items and you know of political memorabilia or something and you could buy that if it weren't for the fact that right before the shooting happened he gave away like half of what he'd collected that night oh, yeah. and it was no longer on him and so then the question is well then what's he really collecting it for well a press badge is like an all-access pass it gets mm -hmm. you backstage at the ambassador hotel where bobby kennedy is speaking you can go in and out of pretty much anywhere if you have a press pass and he had a a Kennedy PT-109 pin. Yeah. He actually had two of them. Again, only one by the time he's that too, because that makes you look even more trusted. Like not only am I press, I'm the friendly side of the press. Yeah. I'm the Kennedy loving side of the press. When in fact, Michael Wayne was like a Nazi lover. And here, right. here he is a Jewish guy, a Jewish Nazi lover. I mean, what, what kind of child? There's even, there's even a character guy. called Mickey Wolfman, who's a real estate developer in that Pynchon novel, Inherent Vice, who's described when he's first introduced as technically Jewish, but wants to be a Nazi. Wow. Uh, wow. Like, I, mean, that, that I don't know if that's even a reference. Point. You know, that's not wow, as odd as it might be... seem. Uh, you know, I think that a lot of the people who were like, you know, I was just uh, talking to Dimitri about some of the letters like that were sent to Hoover about like the Arab mind. Like I've just gotten back to Israel. I just got back from Israel. And, you know, I think that you need to consider the Arab mind, you know, and how they think. I think that a lot of the people of those of that mentality might have uh had similar feelings about, you know, how we need to be a little bit Nazi, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. It's, yeah, the racism is is on all sides. <laughs> mm -hmm. But anyway, yeah, so Mike Wayne, first he's borrowing all these press passes, not borrowing, taking all these press passes, and then he's on Kennedy's floor and goes down the elevators at the same time. He goes down a separate elevator, but it's clear that he's like, He's going to signal the shooters. It's So he's got to get down there. And then he manages to delay Kennedy for a second on his way to the stage to speak and gets him to sign one of his two posters that he had rolled oh, up. Yeah. 
And then he tells somebody that he has to wait because Kennedy only did half a signature and was going to come back and finish it. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, what? You know, did he type R O B E? And it's like, I'll come back and do the R T later. I mean, right? it's just yeah. the guy was such a liar. He claimed to know people. He's like, oh, I'm a good friend of Dick Tuck and this. And Dick Tuck's like, well, I don't know who that guy is. And, mm-hmm. You know, so he's lying to everybody. And it seems like he can't, he had to have had a coat when he came. Uh, he didn't, you know, he must have had a backpack because he collected all this stuff at another event before he got to the Ambassador Hotel. Where did the backpack go? I talk about that in the book and what was in the backpack. Maybe he had some guns in the backpack and, you know, covered up under the books and things he was collecting at these other events. And and it's funny because there was a, oh, there's just so many threads. Like I said, I can't connect <laughs> them all this time. Yeah. But I, I thought it was so interesting that he went to the corner of Wilshire and Westwood because there was a fry cook named Jesse who was a suspect who worked at the corner of Westwood and Wilshire. And there was also the first name of any suspect given was not Sirhan Sirhan. It was Jesse Greer. Yeah. It was Jesse Greer was his last name. And evidently he was somebody who worked at the Ambassador Hotel or at least claimed to or other people thought he would not have even been his real name. He had the ability to find mind control experts and sick them on Surahan. I think I think your Zoom might have uh, like clogged up for a moment. Actually, uh, Khalid, can you turn the video off? Yeah, Um, I was going to say, sorry, is that what's causing the problem? Yeah, I didn't even realize everybody else. No, I mean, not yours, but just in general. Uh, Yeah, Um, Yeah, I think that's a good idea. All right, let me go back. Sorry, you were going to mention something about Mayhew, right? Yeah, yeah, let me, uh, so Robert Mayhew uh, is higher up the chain, I believe, in the conspiracy. And he connects to almost everybody in the sense that he had deep connections into the LAPD. Mm-hmm. All right. He'd even uh, worked with the LAPD on a porno flick where they pretended that an actor was Sukarno of Indonesia and put him in bed with a blonde Soviet agent to make it look like he was being controlled at the time. Mayhew Whoa. did that with the LAPD. Mayhew was really? close to- Yes. But you you also said that he was asked by somebody at the State Department to to like vet prostitutes for Sicarno when he visited Washington in the fifties, right? Yeah, shades of Epstein, right? You I know, know. and yeah. uh, Larry yeah. King and Craig Spence, and exactly, the, 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 the yeah, finding uh, young children for politicians to use as blackmail Raccoon. is like standard operating procedure. Uh-huh. And then Mayhew was close personal friends with Sheriff Pitches. And Sirhan was not in the Los Angeles police jail. He was in the county jail. And I'm not sure why that was the case, except that maybe Sheriff Pitches was a close friend of Robert Mayhew. I don't know how that works. Maybe everybody goes to the county jail. And I don't Uh, want to get us in too much trouble being Los Angeles residents, but uh, the sheriff's department... A sketchy oh, is an understatement. 20% of them are in gangs. Anyways. Um. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. all the LA police, sure. again, like any organization, there's some really good people and there's some really corrupt people. And like most organizations, the corrupt people tend to get a little further and higher than the honest people, which is sad. But that's mm-hmm. often the case in life. Yes. Um, but Mayhew, the, the most important connection Mayhew had to all of this is his connections at CIA were the Office of Security guys who were the guys who were running the mind control experiments. So Mayhew was good friends with Sheffield Edwards, who had been running Project Bluebird and Project Artichoke, and you know, later some of the MK Ultra stuff. 
And Project Artichoke was a forerunner to um, MK Ultra, and mm -hmm. Artichoke was almost the template for the RFK assassination. There was a document where, you know, their basic premise was, can we get a guy of redacted nationality <laughs> to commit an act of attempted assassination as part of a larger operation? And it sounds like that's almost what they tried to get Sirhan to do, give him a blank gun. Obviously, he can only attempt to assassinate. He couldn't possibly kill anybody with that. But as part of a larger operation where there were other assassins there waiting for the signal so they could move in while all eyes were distracted. Because anybody who did see Sirhan assumed he was firing and didn't take their eyes off his gun. And Rayford Johnson even said that because the LAPD said, oh, well, Rafer saw him, and he said he was the only gun. And Rafer said, well, I saw one gun, because once I saw that gun, I didn't look anywhere else. He said, if I hadn't seen the gun, I might have looked around a little more. Yeah. But, you know, and then they use that to say Rafer said there was only one gun, and that's not what he said. And this happens over and over. The police will, like, take whatever part of somebody's statement best served their needs and ignore everything else they said and it's the same thing the media did when the 1995 panel had two conclusions one only there's no evidence of a second gun in that three bullets matched each other but there is evidence of a second gun because none of them matches her hand but the media stopped at like the first match and just completely ignored the second finding. And so most people don't know. And he, like I said, even Paul Schrade does not understand the evidence that none of the bullets ever were matched to Sir Han's gun. And that's why the panel couldn't match them either. He just assumed they had been matched or that Wolfer must have made a match at some point. He didn't. He never did. And it's in his own log. It's literally the, the day he gets Kennedy's bullet back from the autopsy, it's like, it's clear that he knows right away there's a serious problem. And it's not even clear he might've gotten two bullets back, which becomes one bullet. Uh, over time, there were two vials for the shreds of one bullet. That kind of doesn't make sense. Makes more sense. There were two bullets originally recovered from Kennedy's head, but that's a long story that's in my book. But then there's yeah. like a huge gap in Wolfer's record from like 4 p.m. to 9 p.m. And then he works till one. And it looks That's like great. he went out and dummied up the bullets right then because we know for a fact Wolfer took a photo that night that shows up at the 1975 panel. And in their own internal documentation, they refer to this photo and say, we're keeping it secret in case there's a future investigation. And if it gets out, a discerning buff might have an issue with it. In other words, it contains a deliberate deception is what they're basically <laughs> saying. And we're going to keep it hidden and then if somebody says it was a conspiracy, we're going to see this later to show a match between the Kennedy bullet and a test bullet, but it wasn't the Kennedy and a test bullet, and it wasn't even the Kennedy bullet and the victim bullet that the panel thought it was because both bullets had been forged and swapped, and neither bullet, none of them looked at were the original bullets from the victims in the pantry the whole investigation where the evidence was already completely swapped out and this yeah. is the thing people need to understand and before we have investigations like that again we need to see like what is the chain of possession on the bullets and are we sure we're even investigating the same bullets because if yeah. you're not I mean, game that's what can over, get crazy let's not about spend any more money on the cars. yeah 
And as we uh, saw the Rampart Division, I used to live in the jurisdiction of the Rampart uh, Division of the LAPD. And I mean, not the best record for, you know, upholding the best evidentiary standards and... You know, I mean, but then I don't know. Maybe the last twenty years of CSI shows yeah, have been a major psyop in our culture. Receivership uh, for, yeah, yeah. Well, that's maybe. an interesting thought. Well, you know, they used to have that. What was that? The FBI show where the guy always got his man, and you know, yeah. Columbo? People think that uh, the police are. No, no, that was a didn't. good show. <laughs> Dragnet. I, I can't. Magnum PI. No, he's a PI, obviously. Yeah, I think it, it was either Dragon Dead or something before that. Anyway, but yeah, I think a lot of those shows are exactly that. They're designed. And, in fact, there there are whole books written. There's a good one called Operation Hollywood about the influence CIA and the Pentagon have oh, yeah, on Hollywood yeah. and how they reward people who tell stories favorable to the military and how they destroy projects. I think people really have no idea what a mind-controlled culture we live in. Yeah. You know, our reality is shaped for us daily through the media in ways we really don't understand. And and when Facebook started doing that, yeah, at least that got exposed briefly. You know, But they were literally running psychological tests on us and trying different combinations of feeds to depress people or to elate people and to see yep. how to manipulate people. Uh, we all we live just, inside yeah. the uh, QJ Win California field office. Uh, yeah, exactly. We basically do. Yeah, I grew up in it. Uh, basically. I mean, well, it's kind of funny because in this case, like you both, you get the micro uh, kind of aspect of MK Ultra of like manipulating and hypnotizing Sirhan, but you know, sometimes we don't talk about the macro influence right. of MK Ultra, which is on our entire culture and our discourse and exactly. our apprehension of reality and stuff. And just as a funny side note to that, did you know that the Evil Younger hosted a weekly crime drama show called Armchair Detective? And so what? he was like a TV cop. <laughs> like, you know, oh my uh, this God. is, I think, after maybe after he was start? DA. Uh, yeah, it's I was going to say, I his that was his judge. reward. I yeah, bet that was yeah. his reward. Because as I mentioned at the end of my chapter on the trial, I show that everybody who basically guaranteed Sirhan's death sentence, which is what he was initially given, including the judge, who was completely partial, definitely not impartial in any sense. And uh, all those people got promoted and got some sort of a payoff for sinking Sirhan, including the defense team. And, yeah, yeah. Well, and you know, I, I forget Cooper, it. Yeah. Oh yeah, and I, I think actually I don't know if uh, I if uh, this is in your book or whatever, but I remember reading years ago. Didn't Daryl Gates serve in SUS, the future LAPD chief? <laughs> you know what? Um, I've seen. Sus. I I do not believe he was not officially part of Special Unit Senator, but he was okay. there at the time, and he was in intelligence at the time. That's right. He was in but, LAPD intelligence. Yes, at the time. yes, yes. But yes. he was not directly part of Special Unit Senator, and I think people have sometimes conflated the two, and it's not quite the same. God, it's yeah. so tempting because he's such a character. exactly because he's such <laughs> an obvious. <laughs> well, you know, yeah, Even running though, the drug yeah. war in the eighties when, like, you know, the Bushes yeah. were bringing all the cocaine in and you know throwing yeah. you know, uh, oh. poor people in jail and black people in jail. Yeah, I have a great Gary Webb story about that because I went to I I reached out to Gary Webb when his articles broke about how the CIA was selling drugs in Los Angeles to fund mm-hmm. the cocaine. I mean, to fund the Contra operations. I had on my desktop an article from Walter Pincus in the Washington Post that had actually run in his own paper, the San Jose Mercury News. My copy was from the San Jose Mercury News. And the headline was, 
how I traveled abroad on CIA subsidy. And after first greeting Webb's story with silence, the media was like silent for three days. And then the first shot across the bow came from Walter Pincus. And so I'm like, I have to get this to Gary Webb. So I, I found his email and I emailed him about this. I said, go look up this story and you can go right after Walter Pincus because um, he's proud of his association with the CIA. Of course he's attacking you. You're attacking the CIA. And, mm -hmm. and I met Gary Webb later and he said, Lisa, when I got that, I thought you were setting me up. He's like, because that was too good to be true. And he, he said, so I called the, the newspaper and I had them check the archives and sure enough, we'd run that story. And he said, I still thought I was being set up. I thought somebody might have even planted that just so I would fall for it. So he said, so I went to a little out of the way town and I pulled it up on microfilm and there it was. And then I realized what was going on. And so he ended up writing a chapter for Christina Borgeson in her book. Oh, gosh, what is that called? Into the, I'm looking back at my shelf now. Oh, Into the Buzzsaw, that's it. Uh, all these journalists who had run up against stories where they started to call out the CIA and they were career ending stories. Mm -hmm. And so Gary Webb, you know, talked about obviously his career ending story. And uh, anyway, it's that's this is what people need to understand. The reason we don't have the truth about who killed RFK or why is because the CIA has been controlling our media since like 1947. And yeah. Really good at it, so much so that they even brag openly about it. Robert Gates in 1998, you know, wrote a memo, the CIA Greater Task Force on Openness, where he's like, Yeah, we, we have contacts now in every major media in the country, and we've been able to turn intelligence failure stories into intelligence success stories. And I have argued in my book and elsewhere that if you can turn an intelligence failure into an intelligence success, you're ripping off the American people. And what kind of a democracy is that? Uh, and, yeah, and not so, much of one. Right. And, and so this is why they get away with killing the Kennedys, because they control the media narrative. And anybody who challenges that is called out as like a conspiracy freak or even pushed off of Twitter, or, you know, whatever. Oh, yeah. yeah. I hate to say this, but I have to uh, roll now. But you guys, by all means, oh. should continue. Lisa, it's been such an amazing conversation. It was great to get oh, to talk to you. I'm just so glad you read and, it. Yeah, I, no, I, I mean, and everyone <laughs> else should do the same. I'm, uh, yes. Yeah, that's really a, a key message. But uh, you guys, by all means, uh, should keep going. I think if I leave, Dimitri, then... It'll keep going, yeah. right? Yeah. So, you can say peace. And, of course, and then I yes. Can peace. Also By give, all uh, means. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, you guys should continue. But uh, peace out, listeners. Uh, Lisa, again, great to meet you and to have you on. Uh, Dimitri, I'll see you, you in the future. Uh, peace out. Read the book. Uh, peace. A lie right, too cool. big to fail. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Aww. Well, uh, the, Lisa, this has been a great conversation. Uh, is there anything you'd like to leave us with? Obviously, uh, yes. if you could yes. tell us where you to find some of your work. Write, you must write the governor and ask him not to veto, basically, Sirhan's parole. Sirhan was recently paroled, not because he's innocent, because people don't understand that unless they've researched it like I have. But because that's what the law requires at this point. He's 77 years old. He His neighbors even asked for him to be paroled because they know the family. Mm -hmm. um, the brother still lives in their Pasadena home, Munir, and Munir needs him. It's like he's getting old himself, and the yeah. two of them could really help each other. And the governor has kind of signaled that he will probably veto the parole board's decision. And so it's very important that anybody listening who cares about truth and history and a person whose life we can save, it's too late to save Robert Kennedy. We can't stop him from being killed, but we can stop the patsy 
from spending the rest of his days in jail if we write the governor and ask for him to let the parole board's ruling stand and not to overturn it. And that's just the right thing to do by the law. If you don't know the facts of the case, don't pretend to argue it. You know, people sometimes, you know, quote things I've said and get it way out of context and sound crazy. I'm like, no, no, that's not what I said. <laughs> sure. So it's like, if you don't feel comfortable, you know, with the facts of the case, then don't argue the facts of the case, argue the law, which is, like I said, and, and the thing is Gavin Newsom ran on a platform of uh, jail reform and getting people yes. out of jail sooner. It was a core part of the reason we elected him, and it might be good if you're in California to remind him of that, because I think that matters. So anyway, thank you so much for spending the time with me today. Absolutely. It was so fun. It was so fun. And where can people find uh, A Lie Too Big to Fail and and more of your work, like on social media? Thank you. Well, you can follow me on Twitter, at Lisa Pease. It's probably where I'm the most active. You can find the book. In some bookstores, like Barnes & Noble does have it in some of their locations, and any bookstore, any independent bookstore near you can order it, and you can pick it up from that bookstore if you want to give them their money. Of course, you can get it on Amazon, and there's also an audio version for those of you who don't, don't like to read, but you know, have a long commute and want to listen to it on the way. Yeah. Uh, when we used to commute, <laughs> there's also a Kindle version. <laughs> you know, there's a, an electronic version, and the reason I like I bought the Kindle version myself just because I like the way it searches. It's it's really easy to find things. So great for uh, researchers, it's, it's, yeah, exactly. If you want to refer back to something, it's great to have that around. So uh, anyway, uh, thank you so much. Yeah, yeah. So everybody, definitely check out this book. It is, I think, the the most authoritative, I think, collection of analysis of this case, which is extremely important for understanding our past and charting our future. But yeah, thank you so much, Lisa, uh, for joining (laughs) us. Understanding our past is charting our future. Thank you very much. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. So uh, we'll I'll see see you on Twitter and. Until next time, dear listeners, stay vigilant. (laughs) Bye. Bye. All right. I'll stop now. But all right. Uh, Great talking to you, Lisa. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye-bye. This old town filled with sin, it'll swallow you in if you've got. Side.